morning, good morning, or good evening, whatever the case may be, on this rotating globe. Welcome to a very, very special edition of The Other Side of Midnight. The night when we attempt for the first time that we know of to broadcast hyperdimensional mathematics, geometry, and tones to an interstellar probe that came through our solar system in October of 2017, made a right-hand turn around the sun, and has now been leaving for the last uh, couple, three years in the direction of the constellation of Pegasus. It is now something like four billion miles away from the sun, receding in excess of the escape velocity from the solar system, never to return unless, and we'll describe tonight what the unless means. Tonight's going to be a very complicated show, so uh, why don't we start off by doing what we usually do, and then we'll get into explanations, and we will obviously, throughout the evening and the morning, we will explain to our worldwide audience, we're in something like 190-plus countries, how you, the audience, are an integral part of this experimental radio transmission to Amuamua. We have some very special guests. We're, you're going to be hearing the actual transmissions. Uh, we have some technical issues in the background that we're trying to solve. So in three hours, I'm, I think we'll be able to solve them. So let me start with some news items. Obviously, if you're new to the show, and I did uh, Clyde Lewis's show a few days ago, so we may have a lot of new members. What you want to do is you want to go to the other side of midnight.com. That's that's our homepage. And on the homepage, you will see a large banner for tonight, which says Humanity Calling Oumuamua, a live radio test transmission ahead of December 24th. And we're going to describe what the Christmas Eve uh, reference there is all about. There's a, there's a reason for everything we are doing. And uh, we're going to be joined in the first uh, uh, hour by three guests. And then we will have two guests. And then we may have many more guests in the third hour. And all of that will be explained as we go along. So what you want to do is you want to click on that banner. That will take you to the guest page tonight. And right under the banner, you will see... Uh, where it says fast links to items. Click on my items. That takes you to my section of the guest page uh, of our radio with pictures uh, demonstration of various links and videos and audios and um, uh, stills. Item number one, we lead tonight again with La Palma. Remember, last week we we announced that the amount of lava erupted by this little island, this volcano, on this little island of La Palma, which is in the Canary Islands off the northwest coast of Africa, had exceeded any lava eruptions for the last 500 years. And we're watching La Palma because in a worst-case scenario, about half the island could slide into the Atlantic Ocean, creating in some geophysical models what's called a mega-tsunami as several billion tons of material 
you know, kind of slides into the water at a couple of hundred miles an hour uh, in its final plunge, that would create a tsunami that would race across the North Atlantic in all directions, eventually reaching the shores of Europe, of Spain, of Africa, of the uh, northeastern coasts of uh, um, Canada, the United States, the Caribbean islands. It would go around into the Gulf of Mexico. It would even cause uh, uh, major flooding along the Gulf Coast and, of course, the northern parts of uh, uh, South America. This would be a absolutely awful mega catastrophe because something like 100 million people would be in harm's way if this very low probability event, but not zero, were to occur. So every week we have been, since September, uh, updating you with our first item. This is a direct link to the Volcano Watch, which is monitoring 24-7 um, the status of La Palma. Uh, if the island swells like a souffle, that could trigger the half of the island that broke off uh, a fissure was created in an earthquake, major earthquake in 1949, and that's why these models are out there. The first one was put together, I think, around uh, 2001 and published. Now, there have been other models in years since which say that the worst-case scenario cannot happen. But, of course, it's always prudent to assume the worst and plan for the best. So... Uh, I would recommend you put this alert on your phones. So if you live in a area along the coast, all around the North Atlantic Basin, you um, can be ready to grab your go bag and depart for, you know, places high and dry and well inland. I would say uh, 100 miles or so would be a kind of a nice round number. So again, this is a low probability event, but the um, activity of volcanoes all over the world has been rather remarkable of late. We're having a, a kind of a, a rush of, of uh, formerly dormant uh, volcanoes erupting, uh, including places like Mount Etna. So you want to keep a close watch on that. And uh, uh, again, if the worst were to happen, you would be prepared. Item number two, I mean, we're watching not only interesting geophysical events, but meteorological. You will not believe this. When I read it, I did not believe it. This is a story, item number two, in my section of Radio with Pictures. Hawaii tonight is under a blizzard warning. Remember, Hawaii is at 19.5 degrees north. It's in the tropics. They are warning, the Weather Service is warning of as much as 12 inches of snow and winds up to 100 miles an hour on the island of, um, I believe it's the big island of Hawaii, uh, through until Sunday. I mean, this is bizarre. When was the last time you heard of blizzards in Hawaii? Now, it snows often atop Mauna Kea and Mauna Loa. Those are the huge uh, um, shield volcanoes which, uh, you know, extend up to, um, you know, 20,000 feet or so above the sea level. But the idea at sea level, uh, you will have on the island itself uh, blizzard conditions 
with blowing snow and periods of zero visibility. I mean, this is absolutely bizarre. And so you might want to click on that and take a look at the uh, video that was recorded on the top of, uh, I believe it was Mauna, uh, Mauna Kea. As this cold front enveloped the island and moved up the island chain, and uh, that's an extraordinary video to be coming from the island of Hawaii. Uh, needless to say, this planet is undergoing remarkable, amazing, transformative transformations. And uh, that might not be the last of it. Item number three. As if all of this were not enough, a couple of days ago, the Chinese announced that they are planning to send their little U-2-2 rover, which, remember, landed as part of the Chang-4 unmanned reconnaissance of the far side of the moon a couple of years ago. Uh, in 2013, they dropped an unmanned uh, lander and rover on the, on the near side the front side of the moon, the side that we can always see. Because remember, the moon rotates in the same period of time that it takes to orbit the Earth, so we only see essentially one side. On the far side, in this large, uh, very ancient, eroded crater called von Karman, um, who was a very famous space scientist who was involved in the creation of NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in the 1930s, in von Karman, Little Chang 3 is sitting, and its rover, U2 the second, uh, and U2 means Jade Rabbit in the parlance of the mythology of Chang, which is the Chinese goddess of the moon. And there's a whole backstory there that you can, of course, Google. That rover has been kind of prowling around uh, doing chemical analyses and taking pictures and, you know, looking at interesting anomalies on the floor of this very, very large crater, which is just about exactly opposite on the far side of the moon from the center point uh, of the near side of the moon. So if you if the moon was transparent, you could look through the moon and you would see the location of uh, Chang uh, 4 on the far side, which is exactly opposite the location. If you drew a line from Chang 3 and Mari Imbrium on the front, down through the moon, through the core, through the center, out the far side, that is where the Chang 4 rover uh, and lander are located. And that's not an accident. I have said from the beginning that one of the things the Chinese are doing, but they're just not telling anybody, is they're measuring the hyperdimensional physics of the moon orbiting the earth, interacting with the sun during various alignments, which are called in the Earth-Moon system, lunar and solar eclipses. And on Friday, actually, in the wee hours uh, in the East Coast Eastern time zone of, uh, of December 4th, which was early, early this morning, it was still December 3rd here and still December 3rd in California, but it was December 4th, Saturday morning in New York, there was a total eclipse of the sun, as seen from the Earth, which stretched across Antarctica because of the tilt of the orbit of the moon relative to the orbit of the Earth, etc. That's where the eclipse path tracked for this particular event. 
Now, if you're on the moon, if you're on the far side of the moon, it's in bright daylight. It was high noon on the moon. But beneath you, stretching behind you through the moon was the earth being eclipsed by the shadow of the moon projected on our planet. And in that configuration, the alignment between Chang 3 and Chang 4, given that we have measured the same kind of alignment with the Accutron technology, should have made the moon resonate with all kinds of interesting hyperdimensional frequencies and uh, echoes and permutations of this physics. And the Chinese are perfectly positioned to have measured all that but, of course, they're not telling us what they're finding. They don't even acknowledge that that's one of the key experiments that they're performing. We had to figure it out from first principles and where they placed these two unmanned landers on the moon. However, in the same time frame, which was uh, a couple of days ago, uh, on December 3rd, uh, remember, that's Friday, the Chinese announced that its U-2-2 rover on the far side of the moon is going to roll up or rove to an extraordinarily interesting object sitting on the horizon, which is about 80 meters away. And you can see in item number three the photo of the object that they're going to investigate and if you look at item number four in my section, uh, I've done an enlargement, click on it, and it gets bigger. There's something sitting just over the horizon, which looks like some kind of cubicle structure with a flat top, straight sides, looks like two pillars in front facing the U2 black and white camera, some maybe 80, 90 meters away. It could be the top of, of a tower, which is below the horizon, so you can't see the base. Anyway, the Chinese have announced that they are going to send the U-2 rover in the direction of this object, this cube uh, of whatever dimensions that it turns out to be. And what's really remarkable is that they have called this in Chinese. Now, we don't get this through the Western media. In the Western media, they say the Chinese announced they're going to check out a cube-shaped mystery house, whereas because of one of our uh, colleagues and uh, friends of this show, Robert Morningstar, who knows Chinese very, very well, he translated the actual Chinese uh, ideograms uh, into English and they're calling it, the Chinese are calling this object God's secret little house. What? God's secret little house. Now, that's bizarre because it implies that they already know what this object, this structure could be. They're calling it a little house, meaning it's artificial. And then they're connecting it to God, not Chang, not the goddess of the moon in Chinese mythology, but to God. I wonder which God and why is it secret and why are they announcing this ahead of time? 
because when they landed on the moon, I'm sorry, on Mars, you know, a few months ago, and landed right next to some extraordinary artificial structures that we've discussed in uh, previous programs, they ran like hell in the opposite direction. So why are they announcing that they're going to explore in detail, in close-up, by roving over to it a mere 250-some feet, which is nothing. I mean, it'll take over, you know, a couple of days at uh, even a modest pace to get there and to give us stunning close-up images. Why are they announcing before they do this that they're going to do this? Maybe it's because, according to a lot of celestial portents, alignments, hyperdimensional physics, geometry, December, this December, from tonight through the next several weeks, through Christmas weekend, the signs, the celestial geometry, the resonant hyperdimensional physics is optimum for some kind of major, and I mean major, paradigm shift. So by the time we get to Christmas weekend, where we're going to be doing another show and broadcasting uh, to Oumuamua, as well as to the moon, because the moon is not visible from the transmitter site tonight in uh, northern Arizona, but it will be visible on the Christmas weekend of the 24th, the 25th, and the 26th. Maybe by then, the Chinese will have revealed what they have found from going over and exploring in detail God's secret little house. I mean, good grief. Good grief. Okay, to the subject of the evening. As I said a couple of minutes ago, in October 2017, a bizarre object came whipping through the solar system. It fell toward the plane of all the planets. The planets kind of orbit the sun in the same plane, more or less, like an old-fashioned LP record. And at about a 33-degree angle to that plane, and you heard me correctly, 33 hyperdimensional degrees, this object, uh, which NASA called Oumuamua, fell into the solar system from the direction of the constellation of Lyra, the harp in the northern hemisphere in the northern part of the sky. It then fell into the plane of the solar system. The sun's gravity forced it into a very sharp, essential right angle turn, another square, and it departed the solar system um, in the direction of the constellation of Pegasus, which has a lot of significance in um, symbology, in astrology, and in general uh, celestial mythology. Um, there is an animation that uh, NASA put out at, at the Hubble Space Science uh, Institute, Space Telescope Institute in Baltimore, which is item number five. If you click on that, there's a really amazing three-dimensional moving animation of a muamua falling into the solar system, making the right-hand turn, and then leaving in the direction of uh, 
of Pegasus, which is a constellation made up of stars that have a geometric configuration as seen from Earth, a kind of a giant square. We're back to squares, okay? So we're kind of piling mythology on mythology on mythology. The first time that we discussed, I believe, I went back into our archives and looked this afternoon, the first time that we actually discussed what Oumuamua might have been and where I presented our model that, in fact, it could have been an ancient interstellar artificial craft, which was kind of like a time capsule, which was sent many tens of thousands of years ago to rendezvous with this solar system in this time period. The first time we presented my model was on the show, which is listed as item number six. This is a show we did with Gordon White. We talked about a Muamua as being an ancient ET seed ship. Uh, we had Christopher Knowles on the show as well. He talked about some of his research relating to the origin constellation of Lyra, in which there is the uh, uh, you know rather remarkable parallelogram configuration, as well as a star called Vega. Um, Vega, you may remember. Uh, became well-known in popular culture uh, because it was featured in Carl Sagan's movie uh, called Contact. And it was from Vega that an interstellar radio transmission was received by Jodie Foster playing her uh, radio astronomer character in Contact at the Very Large Array, which is a telescope array run by the National Science Foundation uh, south of me here in the Land of Enchantment here in New Mexico. Really remarkable movie. You should see it if you haven't. If you have, you should see it again. because It's all very relevant because years later, out of that constellation did not come a radio transmission, but an actual physical object which was moving extraordinarily fast. It was known immediately that it was not a member of any distant cometary family. Uh, it was thought to for a while to be a comet, but telescopic observations, like every major observatory on the planet, dropped everything they were doing and took a lot of pictures and did a lot of spectroscopy. And, you know, there were listening efforts with radio telescopes. It was not a comet because it was never surrounded by a coma of outgassing or did it form a tail. Now, in, in 2019, 2020, and again this year, in February of this year, an astronomer at Harvard, Avi Loeb, who used to be the director of the Harvard College Observatory until he resigned, he published a very, to the mainstream, shocking hypothesis, totally independent of our calculations and our analyses. So we've got two separate individuals, myself and Dr. Loeb, who have independently from separate sets of data come to the same conclusion that Oumuamua had all the characteristics of some kind of intelligently designed interstellar probe, a visitor, a time capsule, a one-time passerby, whatever you want to call it. 
So that's item number seven from his interview in Scientific American. Now, one of the things that was so bizarre about Oumuamua, if its orbital celestial mechanics were not in and of themselves anomalous in that they followed hyperdimensional numbers in terms of distance from the sun, you know, um, closest approach, angle of, of entry into the solar system, into the equatorial plane of all the planets, et cetera, et cetera. As Oumuamua made that turn and was leaving the solar system, again, and the normal model, never to return, it began to accelerate, meaning by about a tenth of a percent, its velocity did not slow according to any predictable Newtonian analysis of the way gravity functions on interplanetary and interstellar objects. Instead, it actually accelerated very, very modestly, but detectably by means of a number of different observations. These were calculations and observations made at independent telescopes and observatories all over the planet. They all came up with the same data, the same number. Oumuamua, against all odds, was in fact leaving the sun faster than it approached, which under normal physics is impossible unless something was pushing it. Well, what could that something have been? Well, again, the mainstream said, oh, well, Dr. Loeb, you know, you're wrong. The anomalous motion is not due to it being any kind of a designed artifact like uh, Loeb thinks it could have been a giant solar sail being pushed away from the sun by solar radiation pressure, by the light of the sun. Uh, or it could have been a comet which was releasing gas kind of like item number eight. This is a close-up of uh, the comet 67P photographed by the Dawn spacecraft, and you can see all the outgassing. That's what normal comets do. And when they do all that incredible activity, the action-reaction causes them to move anomalously in their orbits because they're basically being jetted around by miniature um, erupting pockets of gas like water vapor that vaporizes under the sunlight near perihelion, and it moves them. There's an action-reaction, and so they're under some kind of thrust. Our model is totally different based on items in number nine. This is a graph from my now-departed friend, Dr. Bruce De Palma, who was a physicist who conducted an incredibly revelatory, incredibly simple physics experiment. He took two spinning uh, pinballs, steel pinballs, and he ejected them into a parabolic arc. You can see the arcs. One was spinning, one was not spinning. And as you can see, and the spinning one is coated blue, the non-spinning one is coated in the photograph uh, kind of a, a pale orange, and the spinning object, the spinning ball, accelerated faster, rose higher, and fell faster, as you can see from the graph, than the non-spinning object. That implies that this physics, this hyperdimensional physics that De Palma 
figured out many, 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 many years ago that that physics, in fact, is involved in the anomalous motions of a muamua, an object that tonight, because of all these characteristics, we are assuming could be something akin to what once was called a bracewell probe, some kind of robotic uh, messenger, a robotic monitor that came through the solar system and may in fact still be functioning, in which case, just like a certain movie, we tonight are going to communicate with a muamua for the first time in its own hyper-dimensional code. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. I think, you know, 
I went through my crazy phase where I made mistakes before the internet and before social media and before any of this. Whereas now you can't do that. There's no such thing. So what you're saying about black and white and what it does is it stops people expressing themselves. People are too frightened. It's like, you know, I want to say something, but if, what if I use the wrong term? But I remember a story a couple of years ago where Benedict Cumberbatch, who at the time was a darling in the media's eyes, was complaining about the disparity between the treatment of um, black actors and of white actors. And, and he was sticking up and saying, you know, they're not getting paid as well. They're not getting the jobs that they should be getting. And they're being, there is no equality. But what he said was, there isn't equality for colored actors. Well, you've said colored there, Benedict. You can't do that. And so they went for him. And he was vilified and he had to come out and do a big apology. Now what it was, it was, it was a slip of the tongue. He's obviously not racist. He's actively trying to say that there is discrimination and he's trying to stick up for that community. But he was vilified and attacked. And that's what happens now. And so when people make their mistakes now, they make their mistakes on the internet. They make their mistakes on social media where they're screenshotted forever. And so I think that's all part of the conditioning that people are frightened. You know, if you're in a position where I don't know what to say, I don't know what to say, in the end, you'll go, well, I won't say anything then. The fallout of this is going to be extraordinary with that because people don't realize, you know, when you, 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 you're phoning up the police and grassing on your neighbors and when all this ends, they're still going to be your neighbors and you're still going to have to live next door to them. And good luck with that. Hello everyone, my name's Gareth Ike. It's been a pleasure to talk on the other side of the news. Fantastic conversation with Cynthia, Timothy and Anessa. And I wish you all the best with a fantastic podcast. everyone to this very special edition of the other side of midnight uh things are in a kind of a state of flux let me tell you what's going on in the background from time to time during the program this evening you're going to hear not exactly the tones from close encounters but something kind of approximating it we'll describe what we mean by that in a minute we have a member of our guest uh, uh panel tonight with us who can only stay till the top of the hour. So I'm going to go to him first. I'm going to delay bringing on David and Jimmy because we have the rest of the evening with them to describe in great detail what we're doing. But just be, be aware that in the background, as we're talking, we are sending about a five-minute sequence over and over and over again, composed of specific tonal frequencies selected because they happen to be the representation of hyperdimensional torsion field geometry and physics, which has been recorded all over the world in our own ancient sites, as well as modern sites, up to and including, oh, wait for this one, the Washington Monument in central Washington, D.C. And wait you hear what we've what david has actually decoded regarding that and the idea of interstellar communication 
and the physics. But I want to go to um, to our our first guest tonight, Dr. Bruce Solheim. Uh, Dr. Solheim is a professor of American history. Um, that's not his only claim to fame, because uh, he also, for the last uh, several decades, has been in conversation with exactly one of the people that we're hoping to talk to out there beginning tonight, i.e. an extraterrestrial. So without further ado, Bruce, welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight. Hey, thank you, Richard. And it's uh, yeah, it's great to, to, to be with uh, all these wonderful people. And it's very exciting. Very exciting. Well, I think we're making history because I know there's a lot of kind of on the record experiments in communication and listening and transmitting and all that going back, you know, uh, like 100 years. But I think tonight is the first time that anybody has gotten the right language to attempt to be open hailing frequencies and, and to begin real communication. And as I said, it's based on our own extraordinarily redundant terrestrial ancient history in the dimensions and geometry and placement of extraordinary numbers of ancient sites all over the planet, not the least of which is the structures on the Giza Plateau in, uh, in, in, in Upper Egypt. Now, you have a... Uh, a, a, a friend who is, as Michael uh, Hall said the other night, not from here. Give us a thumbnail sketch of a how you guys started communicating, and what happened when you put to him specifically questions around our central object of the night, this interstellar anomaly, Amuamua. Yeah. Uh, well. Well. Thank you, Richard. The. Uh, um, I've been in communication with, and actually, uh, yeah, he, uh, uh, an entity known as Anzar, and he calls himself Anzar the Progenitor, and uh, he's he's an extraterrestrial. He calls himself an uh, an ancient alien mystic, but he is the progenitor, so he was the first, our first contact, having something to do with the uh, our evolution. I, I, you know, that's what he's been telling me, but I, I've been in contact with him, uh, pretty, you know, consistently three, three times, four times a week during these spirit walks that I do, uh, since, yeah, for the last four years, three and a half years. And I transcribe all of these, uh, these spirit walks and all the communication that I get with him. And, uh, it, but it, doesn't only come during the spirit walks. In fact, the, when we talked on the phone, uh, you mean you and just, I? Yeah, yeah. You and I talked on the phone. I it's it's almost like I get a whisper in my ear, and, and that's kind of the way it is when I'm on my spirit walk too. So I don't necessarily have to be in a meditative state and on a spirit walk to get information or or downloads or whatever. And, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it. And the, the word that, that came to me while we were talking, while you and I uh, were talking, was logarithmic. <laughs> and it was just, I, we weren't talking about that. It just, it just was whispered in my ear. So when I took a, a, a walk on, on December 1st, I asked specifically, you know, to get more specific information. And uh, Anzar, who I've been in communication with and I've been actually contacted by since I was little, uh, 
but really just been in communication with them the last three and a half years, uh, gave me some information. Now, the way it comes in is kind of, uh, it, it, it's not his fault. It's, it, it's not the, the, uh, the, the, uh, um, you know, it, it's the receiver's fault if there's any fault in it. it. It's not the sender. It's not the transmitter. So I do the best I can to, to understand what he's telling me. But when I asked him about this project that you have, you know, going on tonight and, and testing it, and then, of course, on the on Christmas Eve uh, about Oumuamua, uh, he told me that these are the words he used. He said it was uh, targeted, monitored. And then he used the word sentinel, which is a, a, <laughs> it's a great word, uh, receiving. And then he used the word logarithmic. And then he used the word base two. Now, you know, I, I'm not a mathematician. I'm a historian. But I think mostly when you say, you know, logarithms are usually base 10, right? And base two would be more along the lines of like, uh, I think, in computer science, you know, binary, right? Hmm. So if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and then he said communication. He said nonlinear. Then he said uh, he told me information map, which is kind of interesting. Uh, guidance uh, and then homing signal, which makes a lot of sense compared, you know, based on what you're telling me you guys are trying to do. And, you know, hinting it perhaps it might, you know, the muamua might be coming back. Well, one of the uh, things we're going to try to ask it during the Christmas weekend, because we're going to transmit we won't be on the air, but we're going to transmit on the 24th, which is the center of this hyperdimensional window that we've calculated. And then on Christmas night, we'll have a live show with transmissions. And then on the 26th, we'll have transmissions. Those will be much more complicated and much more comprehensive than the ones we're doing tonight. Tonight is basically just a test to see if the whole system works and uh, right. and, and, and we're going to kind of background the audience into how they can get ready to participate. And the way we want them to participate is if they get signals, if they get a response and we'll lay out how they can get a response, they will let us know. And if you have thousands of people all over the planet reporting the same thing, it's going to be pretty hard to ignore that kind of groundswell of independent confirmation that something remarkable has happened exactly exactly yeah and uh yeah i i i'm very excited about about what you you know what you guys are doing i was i was very uh uh honored to be uh invited to be on tonight and uh i i wish i could stay longer because i want to see what's gonna you know see what's gonna happen but but anyway that uh that's my part in is is that i do have this communication and and it's um it's something that i haven't I've only recently begun talking about, and it, but it makes perfect sense based on, uh, I mean, I've had a very paranormal life since I was a little kid, beginning at age four, and, uh, you know, paranormal things happening uh, frequently, and, uh, but randomly, and it was really the last four years or so that I um, have been able to manage it in any way. Uh, and I'm not going to say control because I don't assume that I have control of all this. That would be very presumptuous of me. But to say that I have some kind of management system is 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 you know appropriate. And uh, but you know, and I think we talked about this earlier. I don't necessarily have to be in a spirit walk mode, in a meditative mode, to get information. 
and uh, it, and and this it, it, it's very helpful to me in my you know as, as a writer and uh, as a uh, as a historian you know to get this kind of information and uh, and I use it in my my academic life and you know writing whether it's fiction or nonfiction whatever so you know, some people call it the muse you know but uh, I I think it's uh, you know, we are tapping into this in intelligence, the space intelligence, these hyperdimensional entities that uh, can can give us the information that we need, the clues that we need to uh, to figure all this out and and understand our place and what we're supposed to be doing. And I think you're right on target. <laughs> well, that's encouraging. Uh, do you want to describe that that one diagram you got in your section of radio with pictures again? Folks, the yeah. way you get to it is you, you click under tonight's banner at the top of the guest page, click on uh, uh, Bruce's items, and that will take you to a, a very, to me a very familiar figure. But how does it how does it play against uh, Anzar, your alien or ET friend? Yeah, uh, so it's uh, it, you know when you look at it, there's uh, one way of looking at it. It looks like it's a big triangle with an upside down triangle inside of it, or you could look at it as three triangles stacked kind of on on top of each other. One of them positioned on the the top of the of the other two at the at the base. And uh, I, this is what I, I, it was downloaded to me. And it started it started this way, Richard, in kind of an interesting way. I was on my spirit walk on my usual route and suddenly I looked down. I never really looked down at this one particular spot and what I saw were uh, three triangular, um, you know, not manhole covers, but water, you, you know, like these, these iron things that, that uh, uh, cover a hole that would have some kind of water fixture or valve in it. And like, there were three like, of them like a public like a public utility, a public utility. And it said water. And there was three of them, but they were three uh, not exactly configured the way, you know, the symbol that Ansar gave me. But they were three together and they were triangular. And I thought, well, oh, that's really odd. I've never noticed that before. And when I saw that, then it, it uh, you know, th this is kind of the signal that I, I needed to get. And then the, the symbol came to me. Now, when did this occur? To look. Uh, I would say maybe three years ago. Oh, okay. So the beginning of your more recent conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, and, and so then it was made clear to me that this is this is his symbol. I don't know if it's for his people or for him personally. Uh, you know, I need to ask him actually more about it, but uh, that's the symbol that I've been using. Kind of like a geometric coat of arms? Yeah, maybe. Hmm. Because yeah. when I look at it, I see instantly, you know, our own work reflected the equilateral triangle. That's what the, the big one mm -hmm. is in, in that's a 2D delta, you know, like the delta variant of the virus. That's, mm -hmm. that's a delta. It's the Greek letter. Alpha, beta, gamma, delta, all right? But it also is a 2D representation of the 3D figure we've talked about endlessly on this show and in my you know, writings and research, the mm -hmm. tetrahedron and the mm -hmm. tetrahedron in the sphere and the you know, relationship of energy and planetary and stellar uh, you know, processes, et cetera, et cetera. Well, by putting those other triangles inside it, therefore – 
if you think of it as a kind of an origami figure, you make it out of paper, and then you just fold each of those other triangles toward each other in the back or in the front. You can move it toward mm-hmm. you. You wind up creating a 3D figure, which is a tetrahedron. Mm-hmm. So your guy's symbol is the symbol of the physics of the universe that we mm-hmm. figured out totally independently. And I find that very, very uh, reassuring because it's independent information coming to us from a very unusual source saying yeah. we're on the right track. Yeah, I would, I, I'd, I'd say it is uh, at, at the very least a synchronicity. And it's the heart of our communications tonight. Okay, yeah. let me let me while we still got you, let me introduce mm-hmm. David and and Jimmy. Uh, David Sarita, of course, is our uh, citizen scientist who is one of the uh, uh, mainstays of tonight's experiment. Uh, I've known David for several years. He was on the show earlier, a couple three years ago. I unfortunately was ill, so someone else actually took the uh, hosting chair. Um, he has kind of decided at an early age to guide his education into all kinds of interdisciplinary areas like world religions and meditation, philosophy, uh, science, uh, uh, kind of, you know, out there, fringe science, some would call it, physics, photography, screenwriting, art, film, music, consciousness, UFOs, crop circles, history, mainstream history, sacred sites, transpersonal psychology, yoga, and I could go on and on. And of course, his full bio is there on the other side of midnight. So David, welcome back. Uh, You've been, you know, this is your second time in like a week. And uh, this is pretty, pretty interesting tonight. Yeah. And Richard, you and I go way back to the Art Bell days because I was a regular in Art Bell, but, but after you started and that's where I learned about you. And I, you were my favorite guest on Art Bell and how your mind for me is is the only one as as a host and co-investigator that can really take this to to a supreme level. And you know, I want to point out, you know, that it was actually um the co-discoverer of the AIDS virus, Luc Montagne, that who proved that human DNA was a transmitter and receiver because of course DNA is it like an inductor transmitter coil receiver coil but it's fluid and it has a fluid dynamic and and he actually measured that dna could receive and transmit ultra low frequencies equal to the schumann resonance of seven to 7.83 hertz so therefore consciousness and the nervous system actually is is part of a tuned circuit so, so part of our experiences that we call psychic are actually part of a circuit because our bones are calcium, which is a metal, and it's a very good conductor. It was previously believed that calcium was not a good conductor. And under a microscope, at the crystal lattice scale, calcium is a cube with six pyramids in it in, on the crystal lattice scale, and so is gold, by the way. So... That means that with piezoelectricity, which is applying pulses and frequency pressured pulses into the human skeleton, it emits an energy field, a pulsed energy field that can that can transmit and receive real electromagnetic energy. So sometimes, you know, when we're having a, a contact experience, 
And in fact, this happened to me this morning at 4 a.m. And this is shocking because this, this has never happened to me. At 4 a.m. precisely, I heard a crash through the window so loud. And all of a sudden, I see a giant rock next to my head on the pillow. And I wake up. And of course, that, that didn't physically happen. But it, it came from the south southwest from direction through my window as a kind of beckoning contact experience to what we would be doing the, the same night because that was this morning at 4 a.m. And we're talking about Oumuamua, which is, which is potentially a conscious, um, either consciously directed or, or, or in technologically directed rock, or is it a spacecraft, or is it a probe, or is it a rock with an antenna stuck in it that's being... Exactly, it's kind of a repurposed natural object. Right, and in fact, we can do that. There's a good scientific experiment because rock has got conductor and semiconductive material. It can function as kind of like a crystal oscillator because it has multi-layered you know, um, semiconductive and conductive. Well, keep weaponry. in mind that all these ancient sites we've been talking about, you know, we, we, we had a conversation with Maria Wheatley. We've had her on many, many times. We were talking about Stonehenge, A. Berry, Silver Hill. These are basically solid state rock ancient technologies that function as exquisite transducers for the hyperdimensional field. Exactly. So when you... When you take that into account and you take into account that the God of the prophets told the prophets to place to Abraham to place an uncut stone that would be the, the temple a receiver to communicate with God, you know, and therefore it had to be a natural rock, but it actually had this telepathic or interdimensional communication ability, right? And you go to this is shocking. You, you, most people have never seen what I'm going to tell you. You go to Matthew 16, 18, 1618 is the golden ratio. And it says, upon this rock, I will build hmm. my church. Now, remember, the church is a temple to communicate with God. And in fact, the holy of holies, which is the cube, which we could be looking at on the dark side of the moon in this new Chinese, you know, rover image. But which is God's little house. <laughs> His secret little house. Secret, secret little, little house. house. You see, and the Holy of Holies at the time of Moses was 10 by 10 by 10 royal cubits, as per the book of Ezekiel. A cubit plus a hand is God only used the royal cubit, not the common cubit. A lot of people make that mistake. But then when, when, when you look at the queen's chamber in the Great Pyramid, it's the same measurement as Moses' Holy of Holies, 10 by 10 by 10 royal mm. cubits. And then you come to the time of Solomon in God's little house multiplied by an octave, which is times two. So, so you know, the, the message that our friend got from his ET contact about the two may have to be, a, may potentially be an octave, because an octave is any frequency. So if you take A432 your A note, which is middle A, an octave, you take the frequency times two to go up and you divide it by two to go down. So an octave is a, is a two function. Okay, let me, let me do a little housekeeping here. Bruce, yeah. can you stay a few minutes after the top of the hour? Yeah, yes, I, I can. And Excellent. I had, a, I had a, a question for you guys just real quick before, because this is fascinating. And I just wanted to ask you guys who have all this, this scientific knowledge, uh, 
another thing Anzar tells me all the time is to remember to be the light, to be the light. That's what he tells me. And, and it, is, it is true that our DNA does emit light, right? Oh, of course. You're, 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 yeah. Your whole body, the infrared heat coming off of your chest, which I, if you take night vision binoculars in mm-hmm. the middle of the yeah. night and get close to somebody, it'll blind you. Yeah, but there's also a phenomenon called bioluminescence. So we literally right. bio-photons. do bio-photons. emit biophotons. Okay, let me bring Jimmy in yeah. here before the top of the hour here. Jimmy is our chief radio engineer tonight. He's been involved in amateur radio since childhood has a passion for building things, including antenna arrays. And he built the arrays that we're using tonight, his transmitters, his antennas, to transmit the first hyperdimensional codes that we know of. I mean, the deep state could have been doing this all along, but they're not telling us if they are. So this is the first public hyperdimensional communication to open hailing frequencies with whatever could be piloting this extraordinarily weird object. We'll talk about how weird it is in the uh, uh, next segment of the program. So let me bring Jimmy on. Uh, Jimmy, what are we doing right now? Good evening, everyone, and thank you, Richard, for, for having me on the show. So we are uh, currently uh, the uh, antenna arrays uh, that are uh, not too far from me are directed towards uh, Oumuamua, as we speak. Uh, it's towards the constellation of Pegasus. And uh, there's a live cam, a live camera on top of the antenna array, which uh, allows us to have a live uh, view of, of the sky if, and what's happening in the sky. And I have uh, around me uh, five uh, computer screen, a lot of uh, very sophisticated and expensive equipment, high-tech equipment. And uh, we have essentially the capability of broadcasting towards Oumuamua at a quarter of a million watt on the 432 megahertz band and 150,000 watt on 144 megahertz band. And so uh, we, it's a very exciting night and there's already a lot happening, and which, we'll, which we'll talk a bit later, but a uh, very exciting night. So uh, it's, uh, it's going to make history. So uh, again, th- thanks for having me on the show. Well, thank you. I mean, this is really amazing because I'm not so sure about it, anybody else, but I believe this is historic in that we've never, we, the human race, publicly have never taken our own history, recorded everywhere around the planet, and literally beamed it back to folks out there, not from here, who may have sent something akin to a Bracewell probe. And we'll, you know, kind of talk about what that is in the next segment. But this is the beginning tonight of a series of transmissions that will be enlarged in complexity, in depth, in subject matter in the conveyance of who we are, in the language, the universal language of the hyperdimensional realities themselves. And who knows? Answers could come, as you're going to hear, in many, many forms. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
Insidersmidnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio is the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this uh, Saturday evening, December 4th, just hours after a total solar eclipse seen over the Antarctic ice sheets at the southern part of our planet. And almost uh, 4 billion miles out there, there's a little object that's uh, a few hundred feet long, as near as we can tell and maybe 20, 30, 40 feet wide. It's about 10 times longer than it is wide. The dimensions are not well known because it only appeared in telescopes, even at its closest approach to the Earth, as a tiny point of light. As a friend of mine used to say, a twink. And all the information that we know about a Muamua has come from resolving the light curve, the fluctuations, of that point of light and putting it into a computer model that kind of satisfies the complex light variations that we, meaning the observatories all over the world, recorded back in 2017 and somewhat into 2018 before it faded in visibility. It's now something like optical magnitude 36 on the logarithmic magnitude scale of astronomers. So nobody is seeing it. Nobody is tracking it. Nobody is hearing it. Um, there was an effort in the, in the fall of uh, 2017 to listen, the uh, Breakthrough Listening Project funded by a Russian oligarch named uh, uh, Yuli Milner, uh, funded borrowing, renting the uh, Green Bank Radio Observatory for about a week. Uh, and listening to see if they could hear anything on a multitude of frequencies, and they heard nothing. But I don't believe they tried transmitting like we're doing tonight. I'll tell you what, let me bring my guest back. David, I think you have available the, the, the tonal range of the transmissions that Jimmy is sending every few minutes. The, the entire file is I think about five minutes. Is that right, Jimmy? Correct. That's correct. Okay. And we're sending it up here. And and hang on, we're we're sending it 
again and again and again. In this interstellar communications business, redundancy is everything. So throughout these three hours, every few minutes, we're going to send this over and over again. This is a sample of what we are transmitting right now. Go for it. Do you want me to press play? Yep. Okay, David or Jimmy, whichever one of you feels better equipped to uh, describe that. What are, what are we actually sending? What do those tones represent? Well, the the tones, is it over, Jimmy, or is it still going? We're just on a break right now. So the first thing you just heard was um a series of tones jimmy do you know can you describe the the order of the tones you placed see my radio is already responding here it is this is what it sounds like when the radio you hear those little chirps i hear like clicks well they're like little chirps and and what happens my radio is tuned to 144.1 megahertz which was the transmission and the carrier waves. So the carrier wave was 144.1, right? And it's already responding, but I'm going to turn it off just so it doesn't interfere with us. Yeah, we need to describe for folks, you know, starting at A, B, C. Okay, so what we're sending them, it's, it's just like that track you played from Close Encounters of the Third Time. The language, language of the universe, isn't a human dialect. It's, it's tone and frequency and ratio between tones, which, which establishes a harmony or chaos. So what we noticed about Oumuamua from, from the data we collected, which is, again, it's probably based on Newtonian physics, the, the Muamua velocity was a representation of the golden ratio number, which was 61,808 miles per hour. And then it dropped just a tad to the ratio. You see, Fibonacci's numbers, let me just explain it this way. 00112358132134, et cetera. You keep adding the two two numbers in Fibonacci sequence to get the next number and the next number and the next number. 
you eventually reach a ratio of 1 to 1.618033987, which is near perfection. But we are talking about the number 144 to 144.1, which is our carrier frequency. So a carrier frequency is like a train, and the music or human voices or pictures are like the passengers on that train. So tonight, our carrier frequencies, Jimmy sent out a series of tones that were that were one to the golden ratio number, because this is the some of the data we're getting from Oumuamua. And we sent out 89 and 144 together, whose ratio is actually the precise number that the, the, again, the Newtonian physics number on the velocity of a Muamua is one is 61,797 miles per hour precisely is the ratio of 89 to 144. So if you take 144 on your calculator divided by 89, you're going to get the latest number that the Newtonian physics tells us a Muamua was traveling at yesterday. So, the next series of tones we sent to Oumuamua were a full spectrum of Fibonacci numbers, so a much longer sequence of seven Fibonacci numbers. And then Jimmy sent a series of eight tones, these eight miraculous tones that he received years ago at 144.1 megahertz on his handheld radios. And these these eight tones are so miraculous, they're numerical values, they resolve huge, huge calculations in physics and the solar system. And, and that's a much more complicated conversation. So just like the track you played from Close Encounters of the Third Kind, we're, we're in elementary school here, right? We're, we're sending them tones. It will take at the speed of a radio signal, which is the speed of light, 186,282 miles per second, which varies slightly over at different times of the year and different angles of the earth to the sun. But that's basically the speed of light. It, it's just under four hours to reach a muamua. And Jimmy has been sending. Hang on, hang on, hang on. So under yeah. normal physics, under normal we physics. would expect that you send the signal. You know, you, you, you start your stopwatch when it leaves the, the, the antenna. It will take four hours, give or take, to get there, to wash across the Muamua, and of course it keeps on going. It goes into interstellar space, you know, forever, right. at, a, at a power of between 100,000 and 250,000 watts, effective radiated power, right? Right, and both times amps is watts. Okay, so you, now, yeah. under normal mainstream radio astronomy, if a Muamua decided to answer right away, it would be another four hours before we hear a response, a normal mainstream radio astronomy SETI kind of response. But you have yeah. discovered in doing other communications experiments, having nothing to do with a Muamua, that when you send a signal in these fundamental frequencies, 432, 144.1, etc. you get a response on a handheld radio almost immediately. Yeah, and what's amazing about that, Richard, is 
We've measured on these radios with a tri-field meter in radio frequency mode, sensitive up to one, up to eight gigahertz, no activity when these little chirps are coming back at us. Now, I want to point out that both Nikola Tesla and Guglielmi Marconi discovered the exact same thing. I, I'm just discovering this now, what they called extraterrestrial interference patterns or disturbances or disturbances and that's the only way because we've talked to a lot of radio experts and and they tend to call this phenomena some type of electromagnetic disturbance however it's not electromagnetic because on a tri-field meter describe what you keep mentioning what the heck is a tri-field meter a tri-field if you go to trifield.com t-r-i field.com a tri-field meter meaning it can measure three fields gauss magnetism or which is measured in gauss and tesla it can measure static electricity and it can measure radio frequency activity okay and in radio frequency activity on the tri-field meter it's measuring watts per meter squared now if i hold my tri-field up to my handheld baofeng radio and I press the call button on my right hand, on my left hand, several feet away, the meter will go to maximum because my entire skeleton being conductive and the semiconductive sodium in my blood is is going to react to the radio frequencies. And therefore, you become, in essence, a resonant antenna. You become a resonant antenna. Exactly. And that may explain the faster-than-light phenomenon because it was proven by Fritz Albert Popp, the German biophysicist, that our living light photons emitting off of our body travel faster than light through hyperspace. No, this is very complicated and the audience has all different Mm -hmm. levels of understanding. Let me see Mm -hmm. if I, because this kind of hooks in with some of my uh, torsion field measurements. You're holding an electromagnetic device, one half of a um, um, uh, what do you call? I'm blanking here. Uh, walkie-talkie system, right? It's, it's like a walkie-talkie system, but it's yeah, exactly. Okay, and it's got an antenna. And when and it's got a little stubby antenna, and when you press the key, it either will transmit or you can move it to receive, right? Well, when you let the call button go, it receives. Okay, so when you're pressing the button, you are transmitting through that radio on a certain frequency, right? Whatever audio is going through the microphone transmits. So if I'm, if Jimmy is transmitting on his antenna in Arizona at 432 megahertz, and my radio is at 432 megahertz. And you guys are several hundred miles apart. Yeah, it doesn't matter because we're in synchronicity. So if if we're both transmitting 432 megahertz at the same time, we're both part of the signal which means if there's a million people on the planet doing this at the same time, we're all part of the transmission because we're all at the same frequency. And I'll give you an example. So in the 1970s, you're driving down the, down, down the countryside and you got this huge antenna sticking out of your car. Remember the big antennas? Now that's, that is a monopole antenna, which means it's only receiving or transmitting, but our, our AM and FM antennas were just receiving at the frequency of the radio station 
and the antenna is trying to be in harmony with that signal, which means the entire car envelops the passengers in that frequency reception. And that's one of the things that everybody misses with radio. Because our nervous system is electrical, because we've got salt and sodium in our blood, which are crystals, and that our skeleton is metallic, it is um, Calcium is a metal, therefore it's a conductor, therefore it's an antenna. We become part of the circuit because we're enveloped in it. And I've measured this. I have a video up on your site right now of me actually showing people this where I'm holding my radio in my right hand and I can measure the signal with the tri-field in RF mode, radio frequency mode off the left hand. So, so that may or may not explain the faster than light component, but, but there's another function. No way, there's, there's a huge part in the middle you're, 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 we're, yeah. we're missing. Okay. <clears throat> you're saying that you, you, if, if you send out an electromagnetic signal at the speed of light, under normal conditions, it will take four hours to get a signal back from a muamua. No How, signal to muamua is just under four hours right now. Yeah, and then it would take four hours to come back if it's EM. Yeah, that's eight hours. Yeah, that's yeah, eight hours. Yeah. So, it's, so it's an additional four hours. Okay. However, if, if whoever is occupying this interstellar artifact transmits on a totally different part of the spectrum, which has nothing to do with electromagnetism, but in fact is the torsion field, the ether it, itself, that velocity is so much higher than light speed that it's essentially instantaneous. It, yeah, and, and yeah, hang, on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. I'm, I'm yep, getting yep, to what yep. I'm trying to understand because yep. frankly, you've lost me. And if you lose mm -hmm. me, you lost everybody because I think mm -hmm. I know more than a lot of people about how this might work. Mm -hmm. If the signal coming back is not EM at all, not radio, not antennas, not radio frequencies, nothing like physics is familiar with, but in fact, it is a hyperdimensional torsion field signal. The only detector that can pick that up easily is a living life form like you. No, no, no not just me. See, we're seeing, Jimmy's been seeing this for years, since 2017. These radios, just like Marconi and Tesla are saying, this interference pattern overtakes the radio, but you can't measure any electromagnetism when it's doing it, but yet it's happening. So somehow, not only are they interacting with an organism, which is consciousness interfaced with our organism, these radios are responding with these little chirps. And we, when we spectral analyze the audio of these chirps, they may all sound the same, but they're not. They're numbers. They're, they're, they're different frequencies in every single chirp. So the and chirps you, are, are basically coded. They're coded as numerical value frequencies. And then when you, when you look at the numbers in the frequency pattern, it's just like that scene in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, my favorite movie that you played during the commercial break. It's like we're going back and forth, and we're sending each other tones and numbers as, as numbers and tones. And what we study is what those tones and numbers in that dialogue mean, and they really mean something. I, I, uh, gentlemen, I have uh, just two questions, or one observation and one 
question, if if I if I might. This is Bruce. Yeah, Bruce, go ahead. Yeah. So you said eight tones, right? Yeah. Your Jimmy trans- got Jimmy. Got, this was years ago. Jimmy He's transmitting eight tones. No. Jimmy receives these eight tones, and then he wrote. He's he spectral analyzed the chirps, mm-hmm. wrote down the eight tones as numerical values. Mm-hmm. He put them on a graph. It took him years to figure out what they meant. Years, and I helped mm-hmm. him with it. In the beginning, the eight tones lined up pretty perfectly. Six of them with black keys on your piano, and two of them with the white keys. Right. But then. They were – some of the numbers were very close to those piano keys but slightly off. But then doing a bunch of mathematics, Jimmy determined, with my help, exactly what those eight numbers meant. And it's mind-blowing. Like, we'd be here all night going through the eight tones and telling you what they meant. That was one of the first messages in the chirps that Jimmy got. But then we started doing more tests, and we found that the chirps coming back – you get a whole bunch of other numbers. So it's like, again, language is tonal, which is frequency. So if I say the word um, boogie boogie man, and I spectral analyze that, every one of my tones in boogie boogie man is a bunch of numbers, right? But that's human language and human word. But word it establishes itself in the ancient world, like in, in the ancient Greek, logos, which is a very mysterious word. Logos, like, for example, John 1 in the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. God converted to Latin and English as no longer logos, just word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Well, wait a second. Let's go back to the Greek, because logos in Greek mathematics is a perfect harmonic ratio built on a series of tones in perfect harmony with each other. And so you could say in the beginning was the frequency. Yeah. And the frequency. In other words, words, reality is made out of hyperdimensional frequencies. Exactly. exactly. Here's something interesting with with the eight tones, because and then combining it with what you know, I was told by Ansar this log base two. So uh, uh, log base two, logarithm base two of eight is three. So you're back to the triangle. Oh, yeah, I think, my Remember, gosh. Jesus said, whenever two or more of you, two or more of you are in my name, ask and you will receive, right? So he didn't say one of you. So one would be a single frequency. Two, if, if the two frequencies are in harmony with each other, which means proper proportion and ratio, which is logos, then Jesus said, I will be there. He said two or more. So three is a triad. So when you have three frequencies that are in perfect proportion, then you really have something. So what we sent out tonight, based on data we've collected from Mua, we're seeing golden ratio language, just like Matthew 16, 18 is the golden ratio. And if you read Matthew 16, 18, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, it turns out the Great Pyramid of Egypt is built on the golden ratio because the way you get pyramid angle of 51 degrees and 51 minutes, 14.3 seconds, is you make a golden rectangle. So your, your, your short side times 1.618039887 is your long side, and you cut a line in the middle of your rectangle, 
and from your corners you make a, a pyramid that slope angle is based on the golden rectangle is 51 degrees 51 minutes 14.3 seconds so going back to to um um matthew 16 18 it turns out saint peter's basilica most people don't know this is 448.1 feet and the great pyramid today high you tall exactly the same height now this is without the apex without the pyramid today without the apex because when when the pyramid is finished it's 480.69 feet according to la miseria's math now watch this in front of saint peter's is an egyptian opelisk and and as a monopole antenna powered by the Earth's schumann resonance it puts out an a note it's actually an A note, but it's it's A444 instead of A440 or A432. Now watch what happens. When an, an obelisk as a monopole antenna receives a lightning strike or is powered by the Schumann resonance, it sends out that A note in a series of first its master frequency, which is which is higher than A444, by the way. But but when you divide it by an octave, which is two, divided by two, divided by two, divided by two, the, the obelisk outside of St. Peter's is 444, which is where John Lennon tuned his A note on his guitar. Now, if you go to the Washington Monument, which is also an Egyptian obelisk in Washington, D.C., this is mind-blowing what I'm going to tell you now, <laughs> because the Washington Monument's precise height and th this is an item on Richard's page. You can go to my website, davidstrated.co, Washington, forward slash Washington. The Washington Monument is, is a 432 octave, perfectly. But it's a high 432 octave. So you come 10 octaves down from the master frequency coming off the monument. And, and the way you do this is you take the height of the monument, 555 feet, 5.125 inches precisely, and you draw two circles with that diameter, they're intersecting vesica Pisces. There's a mathematical formula to calculate the diameter of a circle to the vesica Pisces, which I have on my website, comes to the exact finished height of the Great Pyramid of Egypt, the vesica Pisces of the Washington Monument height. Now the Washington Monument, as it's getting erected, this is happening at the birth of all science, the moment the Washington Monument is being finished between 1848 and 1884, suddenly the scientific inventions of the world, they're not being born in Russia, they're not being born in England, they're not being born anywhere, they're all being born within a radius of that monument. Edison invents the light bulb, 1879. Edison invents the photograph, 1877. Bell invents the telephone, 1877. Um, the Washington Monument, remember, is almost at completion when Bell invents the telephone. Edison and Tesla invent DC and AC in 1882, right, right when the monument's being finished. And they're both right there at Edison's lab in New Jersey, so close. And then Tesla invents radio, Chicago World's Fair, 1893, Sir Oliver Lodge, Tesla and Stone were credited by the U.S. Supreme Court June 21st, 1943 for the creation of radio. Tesla invents remote control, 1898. 
Farnsworth invents the TV, 1922. Vladimir Zorkin, the cathode ray tube, 1917. Henry Ford, the automobile. Henry Dixon, the motion picture, 1886. The Wright brothers. Um, Carl Jansky invents at Bell Labs, which is right there. Bell Labs is right there. Everything happened. Radio astronomy born by Carl Jansky in 1930. So what I'm saying is that antenna, the Washington Monument, at its precise height being a 432 octave tuner, caused a massive awakening in human consciousness, man. All in the United States of America. All. And first, and that's patents distribute worldwide. Okay, we are are at a break. Gentlemen. Pause, pause. Yes. Uh, just wanted to uh, report there's been a major sighting in front of the antenna, two lights, and just another one right now as we speak. Let me, and let you me are recording video. Right we will put the stills yeah, this up. This is a record, Richard, for him to have three sightings in one night of a transmission. Holy cow. Okay, hold it there, guys. You're on the other side of midnight. My guests this morning are describing in real time our transmission experiment on this night of December 4th, 2021, to and the reception appears to be coming back at a rate which is exceeding what would think of as the normal speed of light. In other words, we're definitely in hyper-dimensional terrain. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. If you touch that dial now, you'll never forgive yourself. We shall return. Midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone. Saturday night, December 4th, 2021. My guests this morning are David Sarita, Dr. Bruce Solheim, who's a professor of American history at a small college in Southern California. Uh, Jimmy Blanchett, who is a radio engineer, who is master engineer of our experimental communications tonight with two major antenna systems broadcasting 
hundreds of thousands of watts in the direction of a muamua. But as you may have heard or gathered from the early parts of the program, we're getting responses that obviously are totally beyond electromagnetic radiation or mainstream physics. So let me go to Bruce now. Bruce, I think you had a question you wanted to ask the guys, right? Yeah, it was an observation. Uh, and I and I have to, after I say this, I, I have to leave, unfortunately, but I do. I just wanted to mention that, you know, the image on, on the moon that you showed that the Chinese are going to explore, to me, it looks like the Arc de Triomphe. Oh, my. It looks like an arch, a giant arch to me. And that's interesting because, it, Jimmy, if I'm not mistaken, you're a native French speaker? Uh, that's correct. I'm from Quebec, Canada. Ah, French-Canadian. Okay. French-Canadian. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that that I, I it, that's what it looks like to me. I just wanted to make that that observation, and I I really enjoyed the show, and I I I, I do have to leave, but I I'm uh, I, I just think it's been great. You guys are great. Thank yeah. you. Well, we will have more news tomorrow sure. night and the weeks following, and obviously we will have you back. Thank you so much, Bruce, for your participation. Okay. Oh, okay. Thanks, guys. Good night. Okay, gentlemen, um, David, why don't you uh, – I'll tell you what, Jimmy, why don't you pick up and tell us what you're doing? How often are you transmitting this kind of fundamental uh, set of codes tonight? So uh, I've, been, I've transmitted the code four times tonight, four sequences so far. And um, we've had three, three very, very, uh, you know, very obvious significant sightings. Um, and so I have my hands full right now because I'm trying to take the notes of the time, of course, uh, when it happened. And uh, we're recording uh, live what's happening in the sky. So we have a very clear view of the antenna system. There's an infrared illuminator uh, behind the antenna. So we see very well the, the antenna array in the sky. And... Um, you know, there were very significant flashes really in the sky. And again, it's on video. And, you know, it's, uh, if we look at the time, it's very late here. It's currently, uh, what, 11.35. So these flashes cannot be satellite flashes because we know some satellites can produce, you know, with the reflection of the sun, right. you know, sudden flash that might be visible. But uh, the sun the sun sets here at 5, uh, 5.18 p.m. And, you know, at this time of the night, all the low-Earth low orbit satellites falls in the Earth's shadow. So they're no longer visible. They cannot reflect sunlight. They are covered by the shadow of the Earth itself. So these cannot be uh, satellite flashes. Uh, and the, 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 the one before last was pretty spectacular. There were actually two objects flashing at the same time on the upper left side of the antenna system uh, in, in, in space. Uh, very uh, obviously, it is not possible to determine the distance. Uh, there's no uh, point of reference. These, these objects may be in space or they may be right here in the sky above my head, so it's hard to say. Um, but, uh, it, you know, it, very well be, uh, it could very well be a reply from Oumuamua. We don't know for sure at this point, but clearly uh, there's been a lot of activity and it's very, very exciting right now. David, I want to go to you because um, you have that handheld radio, and mm. you have it currently off. Can you bring it close to the mic, turn it on so we can hear these 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 little pulses? These, you know. Well, I didn't I didn't use my radio for a transmission tonight, so it, it's it's not 
because the way I use my radio in a transmission is when Jimmy transmits, we usually meet up on Zoom. I press the call button, and through my speakers, what he sends out goes through my my radio. And then when I release it, it starts chirping. Now, it was chirping a little bit tonight. Yeah, there you go. You hear that? Yes. That's it. And it just started when I was just, look, it's going crazy, actually. Now, are you recording these so we could use them for the spectrum analyzer to see the individual frequencies that are coded in these, these little blips? Yeah, we, we need to do that, Jimmy, because, okay, first I want to tell you something here. But I'm going to turn my radio off because we, we, we this is just a test tonight. And we need, Jimmy and I need to do this, you know, when we're not on the radio because you have to have all these cameras and microphones going. But I want to point out this because this is confirmation from Tesla and Marconi. This was an article in Collier's Weekly, 1901. Tesla claimed that in 1899, remember, he demonstrated a radio at Chicago World's Fair in 1893. So this is 1899. In his lab in Colorado Springs, Pikes Peak, he accidentally established radio contact with aliens. This was an era when both he and Italian inventor Guglielmo Marconi were the first in the West to develop radio technology. And one night, Tesla began testing a unique radio antenna designed to track thunderstorms. It was then that Tesla suddenly connected to the channel through which he heard strange sounds, as you just heard on my radio, which he soon identified as conversations of extraterrestrial beings. If you notice the randomness of those little chirps, it, 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 has, it has the quality of the way we talk in random beats rather than synchronistic repeating pattern beats. Like, like a regular sine wave. Right. It doesn't appear like a regular sine wave. It's like... It's like birds chirping. That's why I call it chirping. And Tesla said, even now at times, I vividly recall this incident and see my apparatus if it were not really in front of me. My first observations definitely scared me since there was something mysterious, if not supernatural. And I was alone in this lab at night, as I am in my little office. Now, hang on, hang now, on. I, did, did, yeah. when, when Tesla wrote, this, this is from his journals, right? This is from Collier's Weekly, which is a magazine in, in 1901. Right. They're, they're quoting Tesla's um, early radio experiments in 1899. But what is their source material? Is it, is it notes that Tesla wrote down? Yeah, Tesla it, wrote notes. He was... He would, he had an assistant up there with him sometimes. He was, you know, I should point out that Bogdan Castle Magwitch from MIT appointed me director of the Tesla Foundation in Los Angeles, um, and under which I spoke in the United States Congress on nuclear fusion. So I was, I was, I've read like thousands of documents of Tesla over the years. And I can tell you also, this is quite remarkable. In Tesla, he has a patent number, 787412, filed May 16th, 1900, where Tesla demonstrated that a radio signal traveled around over the Earth's surface at a speed of 292,830 miles per second. What's interesting to me about that is it's nearly a ratio of 1 to 1.618, 
over the standard model of what you've got to remember, this is 1900. And it was Mickelson did the early experiments on calculating a more accurate speed of light in the in the 1940s. It was actually the 1940s in Irvine, California, which is where I worked with Maglish right there, the famous vacuum tunnel between the two, you know, the two mountains and there. And, and it's true. Um, the speed of light was not constant. It, it varied. And so when I look at Tesla's data pre-Mickelson experiments, and, and he said that the radio wave went 292,830 miles per second, that's incredibly close to a ratio of 1 to 1.618. It's not exactly, but it's close. And the reason I think that's significant in proportion to what we're doing tonight, because we're sending signals that are a ratio of 1 to 1.618, um, but we're also sending Jimmy's eight tones. I believe we're sending those out tonight. Jimmy has sent out the tones on two carrier waves, 144.1 megahertz and 432 megahertz separately in two different tests. And I want to point out that I've been working with Jimmy for, you know, the, the two thirds of a year now. And you don't get these light flashes in front of the antenna. We've never had three in one night, ever, ever, ever. So this is a huge, it's, it's not to be taken lightly. Okay, so Jimmy, fact, Jimmy, have you been able to take uh, stills, frames from the, your video and send them to Cynthia to be posted in your section of Radio with Pictures? Yeah, yeah, I had the time to to do it for the first sighting. I sent it to her, uh, and uh, I did also a close-up or a zoom-in. Um, and and uh, and also, I, I forwarded the link of the video itself uh, with the time exactly where sighting occurred. So that was the first one. The other ones, I've not had time to process because obviously I'm in the middle of transmissions and uh, focusing on the screen so I can see if there's something happening. These, these sightings are very subtle, very fast, and I need to stay very focused to see what's happening uh, um, as much as possible. But yeah, so I, I sent it to her. Hopefully, she had time to to uh, put it on the on your website. Uh, but uh, all the other videos, I have that uh, recorded here, and I will obviously do the processing uh, afterward. Okay. Now, another interesting thing I want to point out is the work of Nathan Stubblefield in the early days of radio. Stubblefield was able to send radio signals station to station through the Earth's crust. And he did this incredibly accurately. In in fact, I think some of these patents were 1888, so we're right around the time of Tesla, and we're right in alignment with the Washington Monument theory, that the moment the monument is, is coming to completion, suddenly the mines of everybody within a radius of the monument is exploding with inventions. And so, so let me, let me let's, let's skip over this. I yeah. really wanted Georgia Lambert to be, you know, our resident metaphysician. Cause when I was telling her this afternoon, she's very ill with, uh, with allergies. She can't talk. Hopefully she'll be better, you know, a couple three days and she'll be with us on the Christmas night broadcast. Uh, when I told her what you and I discussed relation in relation to the monument last night, she got very intrigued and excited because, in essence, you're saying that when that structure, that obelisk was completed, 
it established a amplifier of extraordinary power and dimension centered in the nation's capital, extending outward in all directions. And within that field, consciousness was raised to where these ideas, these wonderful inventions, these connections of engineering and and you know just understood physics in the uh, uh, you know 19th and 20th century were kind of born like you know we always say in cliche terms out of the ether. In other words, you're saying that that obelisk literally propelled a new era of creativity and higher consciousness, not just in invention, but in basically the political structuring of the early United States in the 20th century. Exactly. And in fact, it's actually the foundation of the creation of the first free you know, civilization on the entire planet. And, and it's amazing how, when you, when you consider the inverse square law, so when you imagine the signal coming off of the monument powered by the Schumann residence because it's steel frame connected to the earth. So it, it's a powered antenna by the Schumann residence and it's giving off that frequency. And the further you get away from it, that frequency gets weaker. What blows my yeah, mind. Wait, 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 wait. That's, yeah. it. That's assuming conventional mainstream yeah. radio physics theory. If, as I'm suspecting, this thing is a hyper-dimensional antenna tickling the torsion field itself, we don't know that it's a one over R squared fall off. It could have a, yeah, to- you're right. it because- could have a totally different mathematics going back to Bruce Solheim, base two. Could that be somehow relevant? Well, because you, I love the way you challenge everything and because it makes me think harder, and I, I really appreciate that. I just want you to know that. Nathan Stubblefeld was putting his coils and, and, and hammering an iron rod into the earth and then would, would find these, these, these locations in the earth where there was more power going through his coils connected to the earth than in other locations. But nevertheless, he proved, and again in the same time period in the eastern United, upper eastern United States, that you could ba- you could make telephones that would go right through the Earth's crust, and 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 the accuracy was phenomenal. It wasn't staticky. It wasn't poor quality, and therefore you have to think of another way extraterrestrial signaling could be happening in our planet. That they could be sending us a signal right into the Earth's crust. And because we're walking on the Earth's crust, we could all receive it. We could receive that that harmonic frequency upgrade. But what interests me the most as I developed this theory, going back to the earliest experiments in radio with Alexander Graham Bell and Bell Labs and Edison's lab and Tesla's labs, they these this this quality of mind got so explosive but it wasn't happening anywhere else on the planet. When the patents were registered and they were, they were, they were distributed to the European world and other parts of the world, scientists there started to study them and you got this kind of ripple effect where other people's minds started to evolve more when they got the data from these experiments. But most of the major breakthroughs, and I mean all of them, 
happened within a certain radius of the monument from the day it's coming to completion. And then once it's complete, the whole world changed on the Upper East Coast of the United States. That's where every single thing happened. And, and I read physics manuals on just on Bell Labs and their inventions throughout the decades. I mean, you're talking about Motorola. You're talking about the cell phone. The, I mean, everything. Solar was, cells. You're solar cell-powered satellites. Well, solar cells are older than you can imagine. It's actually at Bell Labs that they discovered that molybdenum was the highest photoelectric conversion 100 years before we used molybdenum in thin film solar, by the way. So the the thin film solar goes way, way back to Bell Labs once again, which is really close within within the speed of light radius of the The monument. The transistor? The transistor is Bard, uh, Will Shockley, John Bardeen, and, and, and Will Bratton. And again, that's Bell Labs. Those guys were all at Bell Labs. The laser? Yep. In and, other words, all right, but uh, assume it's not one over R squared, or what we call the inverse square yeah, law. Yeah, I, I, yeah uh, assuming it's not. Well, it, so think of it this way. If we're dealing with a hyper-dimensional geometry interfacing with 3D geometry maybe it's a bubble with a absolute cutoff beyond a certain distance and if you're within the bubble your consciousness is raised if you're beyond the bubble you don't feel a thing in other words the geometry of the antenna is not going to be like an electromagnetic antenna it's going to be a hyperdimensional geometry Yeah, and you were getting into this with me earlier about the aluminum, a tiny little cap at the very top of the monument. Yeah, well, the thing that was so intriguing to me is when the the monument was finally completed, because there was a long period where they couldn't raise the money, the Masons got involved. It's a very fascinating history of the creation of a monument to the, you know, father of our country, George Washington. The original monument was very rococo and very elaborate and not that stark spire, that Egyptian obelisk that we know now. And it took them decades and decades and decades of starting and stopping and starting and stopping till it was finally finished in what, 1884? Yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty close. I mean, it's again, as it's being erected, you're already close to your master frequency. The last part on the top made it very, very precise. But so, it is- so when they get to the top, they wanted to put something different as this little pyramidion. And what they decided to do, and again, you know, we need to delve into who decided and why. They decided to make the very apex, which is basically just a few inches, you can hold it in your hand. And instead of being stone, as the rest of the monument, cut stone by master stonemasons and and facing and all that, it was made of metal. And at the time it was created, it was the only object made of this metal anywhere on earth. The metal was so incredibly rare and difficult to, to synthesize, to produce out of minerals, background materials to melt, and to to uh, to basically mold 
into this little pyramidion, which was like a Russian pyramid, very tall and steep, almost like a steeple on a church. And the metal was aluminum. Now, aluminum is really weird because in the entire periodic table, aluminum is the only natural material, natural metal, that interacts in a unique way with a torsion field. And you know what's amazing also, Richard? The throne of God in both Ezekiel and Enoch is sapphire. And sapphire is an aluminum ozone oxide. Yep. And that's interesting too. So I want to point this out very clearly just for the record. At 555 feet, which took a long time to resolve the height, 555 feet and 5.125 inches, as a monopole, the wavelength is four times the height, which is 2,221.706333 feet. Now, that is incredibly close to a double 1111, which would be 2222, by the way. So, and, take- and, and 1111 is part of a sequence a mathematical code which resolves down to 19.47, which is the inscribed tetrahedral angle of a tetrahedron in a sphere. Right. Now, watch this. This is all related. It's not it's an accident. Related. It's all related. Now, okay. Watch keep, wait, wait. We, we need to – hang on, hang on. We need to uh, refresh uh, the other side of midnight. Kintia, in her masterful way, has been able to post – Jimmy's images of the bizarre object, the quote, UFO appearing suddenly over his antenna as it's broadcasting tonight to a Muamua Live. Items okay, so- four, five, and six in Jimmy's section of Radio with Pictures. Okay, so 1111 squared which means times itself is one, two, three, four, three, two, one, which is 432 forward and backwards, by the way. And the Washington Monument is, it's freak. So you take the speed of light in feet divided by the wavelength in feet, because your speed of light has to be at the same resolution as your, as your measurement of your wavelength. Its frequency is 442,709.351 hertz. Now, if I divide that by a musical octave 10 times, so I come down 10 octaves, which gives me a total of 11 octaves, so we're back on the 11, mm-hmm. we're at 432.333 hertz, which means the Washington Monument is a high A note, but it's a 432 octave. And again, 1111 squared is 432 left and right from the center of the decimal. So I think... This is the birth of America. The, the, the Washington and his spiritual vision, which is a whole other story, is, is so mind-blowing. And the Enlightenment process to erect that, it's, it's not a symbol. It's a frequency transmitter that made America the power center of the world. And again, if you go to my page, you're going to see you make two circles whose diameter is the height of the monument. Which which is, which actually comes to 555.427 feet if you do the math and the conversion, times 0.86611062353828, which is the ratio of a vesica Pisces to the diameter of two circles, you come to 
the finished height of the Great Pyramid of Egypt, which means the monument's diameter is the mother wavelength that gave birth to the height of the Great Pyramid. And that is, is mind-blowing. And look on the monument grass. You will see on the lawn the configuration of two circles forming a vesica Pisces, and, and so what I'm saying is not abstract. It's right there on the lawn. The secret is in the Vesca Pisces. This is item number one in your section of... Yeah, this is item number one. So this, to me, is the birth of the first radio frequency transmissions in the modern world of America. And Tesla, Lodge, Stone, Edison, Westinghouse, all those inventions, Alexander Graham Bell, which is the founding father of Bell Labs and the inventor of the telephone, it's all right there in the upper eastern Atlantic within the certain radius of the monument that all the inventions were created to change the entire history of the world. Now, if this model is correct, that the monument was built to primarily enhance consciousness to make this American experiment, this experiment in American exceptionalism, exceptional, all right? What would happen if you somehow broke the monument or short-circuited the monument or cut it off from its source or did something so it no longer functions as this extraordinary hyperdimensional amplifier of consciousness what would you expect would happen in the country you, you cause the destruction of the country and in fact that's one of so now the, hold on yep, yep, look, yep. look around what's happening in our country right now tonight exactly we're in the, the process of literally dissolving the american experiment is collapsing right in front of our eyes Democracy is under extraordinary peril. Let me let me lay out another idea, okay? On August 28th of 2011, there was a major earthquake in, um, in a little town about 80 miles from the monument in Virginia. Almost a uh, a six. It was a 5.8, and it was the epicenter was four miles down. There was a lot of chatter about what that really represented. More people than in any time in American history, including the you know earthquakes on the West Coast, because of the population density of the East Coast, more people were affected directly by that 2011 earthquake than any time in American history. Also, two major national monuments were severely affected. Nobody died, thank God, but two major monuments were so severely affected that they had to be closed for several years to be refurbished, to be repaired, to be restored. One was the National Cathedral, and there's amazing photographs showing the damage, including some of the spires that slid sideways to where they almost toppled. And the other monument was the Washington Monument, which was closed from 2011 to 2014 for repairs. Let me propose an extraordinary, totally speculative theory. 
suppose under the guise of repairing the monument, somebody actually short-circuited the monument and it no longer can function as the consciousness, I'm sorry, the consciousness shield. Boy, I can't talk tonight. The consciousness shield of the United States. And look at our history from that moment on to tonight. Wow, that's that's just incredible. And also, you can see the monument getting struck by lightning. I have that video on, on my website. And, and this has actually happened twice and, and was caught on camera. Now, there's, there's several ways to disturb the frequencies and all of the rippling octaves coming off of yeah, the monument. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Jimmy. We've blown past the break, and I, I can't do that. It raises terrible havoc in the background. So... We need to take a break, so just hold it there. I know this sounds like a crazy theory, but given what David has documented, that you know the rise of the extraordinary age of invention in the United States basically began with the culmination, the completion of this extraordinary spire, and the fact that it matches all the appropriate frequencies for interaction with the field. What would happen if you could somehow short-circuit it? You could unhook it. You could disconnect it from the consciousness of both the body of politic in Washington as well as the general consciousness of the citizens of the United States. And in fact, is that what we are seeing? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thank you. 
Dog Radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone. It's now Saturday night, Sunday morning here in the land of enchantment, the December 5th. So, continuing with our conversation, you know, David, it just seems to me that if that monument with all those specific geometric and constructional materials and ratios and meanings in the control of the hyperdimensional field. If in fact someone figured out a way to, under the guise of repair, to basically break it, it basically leaves us defenseless at a critical time in history, in the processional cycle, this once every 26,000 year window where we are supposed to make extraordinary choices and we're now making very strange choices. Is it because our shields are down? Well, am I back here? Or? Yes. Well, when you, when you, I like the story you sent me, the Sentinel, Arthur C. Clarke, where it's his, when his you know, award-winning essay you know, on the moon, these astronauts discover this, pyramid that is very very shiny it's twice the height of a, of a man apparently so it's not that big but it's transmitting an energy field that reflects even even all of the dust and meteoric dust from from getting anywhere near this protection field and when you look at a monopole like so let's go to isaiah nineteen nineteen, where where god the god of the prophets tells his people to erect a pillar to the Lord in the land of Egypt. And the pillars were the obelisks, right? Mm-hmm. And in fact, I found one obelisk lying in the earth because it was damaged. And we could get a really good measurement of the height of that obelisk. And it was that exactly one quarter of the height of the Great Pyramid of Egypt. And remember, a monopole transmits a wavelength four times its height. So that means that that monolith lying in the ground, that obelisk, its wavelength was the height of the Great Pyramid of Egypt. And remember, the the Washington Monument is the Vesica Pisces of the two circles formed out of the, the diameter of the Washington Monument's measurement. So whoever designed this thing, I mean, I was trying to figure this out. Like, Was it Washington himself, his famous vision on the battlefield of the two great attacks, the iconoclastic attacks against America that would occur in the future, and the second one would nearly destroy America, but it wouldn't win in the end? Is That was like a prophetic vision that he had and that's of course before the monument gets built but it appears that of course washington is the first president of the united states he's the founding father and first president but his his vision obviously in, inspired the building of this of this monopole and i often wonder 
does it come from Isaiah 19, 19 in the Bible, where God of the prophets, and again, would, would, again, to build a pillar to the Lord God in the land of Egypt. Now, when I look at the measurements of the Great Pyramid of Egypt, and I see that the Queen's Chamber is a perfect Holy of Holies, the same measurement as Moses' Holy of Holies cubic tent, which is the house to the Ark of the Covenant, and the staff of, of Aaron and Moses lay in the Ark of the Covenant, and there's 12 staffs, by the way, and then extending beyond the Holy of Holies is what's called the Holy Place, which is 10 by 20 cubits. That's the King's Chamber. It's 10 by 20 cubits. So that would mean because they found no Egyptian inscriptions inside of the supposed tomb of, of Khufu, which was which is which is a name that comes from the Egyptian Hufwa, which became Kufa, which became Khufu, which actually means the same thing as the Hebrew tetragrammaton. It just means I am that I am. That's what Kufa really means. Hufwa Kufa is 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 essentially the a, a temple a a monolith in itself a pyramidal monolith that was a frequency transmitter that caused an awakening of an ancient civilization and there was a massive event that happened on the earth that wiped out that civilization and then in this valley people discovered it after the great flood and they built a whole civilization around it called ancient egypt now the what i'm getting at here is just like the, the vision of Arthur C. Clarke on the moon, and now this cubic building that that may be a holy of holies. We don't know the measurements of it, right? You know, and 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 so I mean, I've studied royal cubic school. You're pottery. talking about the object that the Chinese right. say they're going to explore on the moon in the next couple three days, right? And, and so I can't. I want to see those measurements, and it's the inner measurement that matters the most in in a holy of holies structure. See, at the time of Solomon... Well, frankly, David, if they find any damn thing artificial, it's, that's game match set. Uh, yeah. Frankly, I don't care what the dimensions are. Any artificial structure, everything changes. Well, it looks artificial already, but we'll see, you know... Again, well, we can barely see it. Hey, look, I, I don't want to get bogged down. We could do a whole program it's, on the monument. Let me give you a couple other ideas, and I want to get back to Jimmy, okay? Yes. And then I think we have... Uh, Ruggiero, who's joined us from England, and we might have Tim Saunders uh, joining us from Turkey, uh, who have some interesting oh, questions. So, so I have one really important point here before you go to Jimmy. Go ahead. I want to point out that the wow signal, August 15th, 1977, on the anniversary of the wow signal, this was in 2012. The Arecibo Observatory beamed a digital stream toward, towards Hipparchos. The transmission consisted of 10,000 Twitter messages solicited for the purpose of the National Geographic channel bearing the hashtag Chasing UFOs, a promotion for one of the channel's TV series. What they did is they, they sent a signal back to back into space on the anniversary at the same frequency, I, I suppose, which is what we're doing tonight. In fact, they did this in 2012. This was this was a, an example of sending a signal out into space. And we don't normally send signals into space, folks. I mean, George Harris' song across the universe about his guru, Dave, was sent by NASA to the North Star Polaris 
over 200 light years away in 2008. Most of our radio transmissions are Earth-to-Earth, satellite bouncing off satellites, making our way around the planet. So what we're doing tonight is not standard. We don't generally send signals out into space. But I just wanted to point out that we did we did send out a signal, and there's a lot of details on that signal that went out um, in, in as an anniversary signal to the WOW signal from 1977. So... Okay, um, let me ask Jimmy a question, okay? Um, are, are you in front of a computer, Jimmy? Uh, yes, I am in front of a computer. Yes, I have five uh, screens around me. Okay. Uh, and by the way, we just had another sighting, believe it or not. Uh, it's amazing. Oh it happened It happened at, uh, about five minutes ago while I was spinning on, on 144.1 megahertz. To a is. Correct. Uh, this okay, is, so, uh, so let, 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 me, let me, for the audience, let me clarify. You're using two transmitters to transmit to a Muamua, which is four light hours away. And in the direction of where the antenna is pointing, can you see our number four in your section on, on, the, on, on the screen on, uh, in our radio with pictures? Yes, I do. Okay. You see your antenna there at the bottom, right? That's correct. And in the red circle, it's one of your UFOs that appeared near the antenna, right? Exactly. Is that this, antenna this, mm-hmm. that we're seeing in the bottom of number four, is it aimed toward a Muamua? It is. Which it, means... I keep tracking... Which means, hang on, the UFO is appearing in the line of sight to a Muamua. Exactly. That's exactly right. The, well, that's uh, the non-trivial. Camera. That's hugely important. Remember, it, it, it could appear anywhere in the sky. Of... It's posing exactly. in front of the camera aligned with yes. the antenna with a Muamua invisible four light hours away beyond it in Pegasus. That's correct. The four sightings have occurred right in front of the antenna at various locations, but they are in light of sight in the direction of Oumuamua. That is uh, significant. Last, that is very significant. The last significant. sighting was pretty spectacular. The last sighting had two different flashes at different locations in the sky. Maybe with one second interval or half a second interval, I will have to do the analysis. Um, I, <laughs> I just have time right now to process the video. I send the first three sightings to your producer, so she should be able to put this up on your website. I, I did a screenshot and uh, circled where the object was. Yeah, that's the one I'm referring and, to. And number four is, yep. a, is a wide angle. Number five is the close-up. Now, are, are these objects that just appear like stars, or do they have pulsations? Are they twinkling? They are... They, they phase in and phase out extremely rapidly like a flash. That's what, that's what we've seen tonight. Different location in the sky, but they are all in the you know, general direction of uh, Oumuamua. And uh, one of the sightings, as I mentioned before, was actually two objects simultaneously, perfectly in sync, just appearing for maybe a fraction of a second and just phasing out again. Now, when you, analyze, when you analyze the video... You'll be able to slow it down, and you'll be able to look at the pulse rate of any flashes 
in terms of a mathematical sequence, correct? That's correct. We'll be able to do a post-analysis and, and find much more than what we found out. Obviously, this is just a, you know, this happens. So, so it might be the these UFOs are appearing over the antenna aimed toward a Muamua, obviously just above the antenna, not, you know, billions of, of miles away. And if they were flashing in a sequence that was answering your transmission, that would be a way of answering the uh, the call. That's right. Well, all the sightings that has occurred tonight have occurred either during transmission or shortly after, maybe, you know, a minute or two after. So they're linked in time. Mm -hmm. So they're making the connection in time. And they're making the connection. And they're making the connection in space because they're aligning themselves with the antenna, which is pointed at a Muamua. That's correct. I mean, if you look at what they actually, and I have to uh, get the specification of this camera. This is just a very basic uh, security camera, literally a 10, 1080p security camera. Uh, the, the, the field of view is, you know, is not very wide. It's pretty narrow. So if you look at the entirety of the sky for this, these four sightings to occur in that very narrow field of view during the transmissions, statistically speaking, is extremely uh, infinitesimal in terms of probability of that happening. So okay. Really, yeah. Now, I want to lay out a kind of another idea here. We know, based on the uh, uh, U.S. Navy sightings, the so-called UAPs, the stuff that's going on in Washington with the Pentagon that we're going to be discussing in great detail tomorrow night with Stephen Bassett and Dr. Joseph Buckman, We know that there is a whole bunch of official government ferment around UFOs. Suddenly, they're taking it very, very, very seriously, okay? So we apparently have lots of visitors in the neighborhood. Tonight, we're trying an experiment to send basic hyperdimensional tones that have meaning in that matrix mathematical model to a muamua. But if there was anybody else in the same neighborhood much closer, like hanging around the Earth in your average spacecraft, and they all know the same language, they could be getting in on the act having nothing to do with the Muamua itself. It's just kind of like, oh, here's an opportunity to join the party. You see what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it is absolutely a possibility. I mean, if we uh, if we look at the totality of the transmissions that emanate from planet Earth, uh, you know, the transmission, the power we use uh, in the directivity is is that signal clearly stands out a lot from the the, the planetary black background noise, if you will, or the you know all the other broadcasts that are happening. Very very few transmissions, you know, go out of or emerge from planet Earth at that, at that kind of intensity of power. So any uh, civilizations out there who are monitoring planet Earth will absolutely detect the signal, and, you know, if they decide to do so, will we'll, uh, provide the, what I'm, the confirmation of sign. What I'm saying is, apart from these instantaneous responses, which could be from people who know what we're doing and are in the neighborhood and just want to get in on the show, get in on the act, you know, like ego prevails, we could in fact have a dedicated response from a muamua 
which could be at the speed of light, meaning it'll be four hours into, you know, late, late morning before the first returns would arrive, right? That's correct. Okay. We need to talk now about how our audience can participate in a normal radio frequency electromagnetic way in this listening for a signal from a muamua because we've created what is a really elegant using off-the-shelf equipment that almost every household listening to us right now should have available if not in their house then in their car so who wants to tackle how people can receive a normal radio transmission four hours after we started sending, which was earlier tonight, about 9.30 uh, Mountain Time, and what they should expect to hear and how they can hear it. Who wants to go first? It is item number one uh, in the section on the um uh, uh, radio with pictures, the Jimmy's, my, my items, Jimmy's items, item number one, it is called monitoring tools. So the folks out there wants to click on that image. There is a, there is a description here of different detection tools that the audience can use to, to listen to, uh, and try to see if there's a, any kind of reply or interaction. The messages that will be broadcasted on the 24th, 25th, 26th will contain very specific instructions about which frequency uh, they can use to interact with, with humanity, if you will. And so the detection tool, we see the first set we see are just basic regular uh, AM, FM radios. And um, the instruction is to tune the device on the FM band on 108.0 megahertz. So any car radio that you have in your car, the, the regular FM radio will go up to that frequency, 108 megahertz. Um, and if you have any, you know, shortwave radios or even uh, an alarm clock, literally will have that frequency as well. Although if it's not numerical, maybe it be difficult to find exactly that frequency. But basic radio. The second uh, tool that... Uh, well, hang on, hang on. Hang on. So, so since most people have FM radios, how do they use it to listen for a return signal tonight from the Oumuamua transmissions? Right. So, so the force is to tune on that frequency and monitor the behavior of the radio itself and, and look for anything that would be unusual or a change in the behavior. Uh, you know, if obviously if there is an actual FM radio station on that frequency in your location, in your city, uh, that, that may be a bit more difficult because then it may be more difficult to find, you know, if there's any kind of interaction. But uh, that higher upper part of the band, typically it's, it's pretty quiet. So if there's nothing, you monitor the frequency and look for any unusual behavior, any sound, any anything that stands out of the ordinary and, and and you want to record it you don't want just to listen Absolutely. to it you want to make a record a tape use your phone as, as a recording device record it in the expected window which is four hours beginning four hours after we started transmitting which was about nine thirty mountain time tonight last night actually 
Yeah, it's important to note that 108 is two octaves down from 432. That's what I wanted you to talk about, yes. There's a reason why that – in fact, it's probably why in a very deep state arcane, you know, engineering, why 108 megahertz is on the FM radio spectrum in the upper band. And the number yeah. 108 is incredibly profound religiously, spiritually, by the way. So. Yeah. And so if I want to, so there are two other tools I'd like to cover briefly. Mm-hmm. Um, some folks also out there may have what we call a family radio service or FRS radios or GMRS radio. Uh, these can be purchased really at pretty much any local electronic store. They all, uh, you know, anybody can buy them. They cost maybe $20, $30 for a pair of radios. And they all, they don't have frequencies per se, but they have channels, right? But these channels correspond to frequencies. So for this particular experiment, we are asking the folks to tune to the channel 14, channel 14, channel 14, which corresponds to the frequency 467.7125 megahertz. This is for the USA models. Uh, I know there are models in other countries which may have different frequency allocations. So we're not, we're not going to cover all the countries out there, but in the United States, it's channel 14. Similarly, listen for any unusual behavior. Something happened that stands out of the ordinary, as Richard mentioned. Make sure to video record. Record audio it. Record, record it. Yes. Can't stress that enough. Exactly. And on this radio, actually, you can even transmit um, because they're all two-way radios, uh, you know, can legally transmit on these radios. And finally, if you have a programmable VHF, UHF radio uh, that you're uh, authorized to, uh, you know, have or operate, similarly, you can, you can use any of these frequencies that I mentioned before, either 108 megahertz or 467.7125 megahertz or 144.1 megahertz, which is the specific frequency we're broadcasting on tonight. One of two. That's correct. Yeah. Or 432. Yeah. Or 432. Yes. Exactly. And 432 as well. That's correct. Now, Jimmy, I, I, have a, I have an important question because people need to know this. I mean, this was, again, in the anniversary transmission of the WOW signal in 2012. So you need to describe the WOW signal. Why was it WOW? Where was it received? Why did everybody jump up and down? And why was it never heard again? Well, the wow signal was August 15th, 1977. And what was significant about the wow signal is it's this incredible frequency that that appeared right above the hydrogen line of 1420.3556 megahertz, which is, we're all, again, the hydrogen is the most abundant element in the universe. And so what's known as the hydrogen line for, in order for an extraterrestrial to send us a signal, it would have to be distinctive against the hydrogen line. So basically, there was an argument between the discoverer, Eamon, and, and actually um, classical physicists. In fact, this is really – this is really – This was detected by a radio observatory in Ohio. Called, called the Big Ear. Called the Big Ear, which has been dismantled yep. now which is such a tragedy. It was only heard once. It lasted 72 seconds, seconds, which is really important in the hyperdimensional mathematics and never heard again. Yeah. And remember 72 times an octave is 144. 
But here's what interests me even more than that, because the window to hear it was 72 seconds, but it was never repeatable outside of the 72 seconds ever again anywhere else on the planet. Like in the movie Contact, you know how they contact Australia and they say, can you pick up the signal next? Nobody else could pick it up. But what really blew my mind is that what what happens is Eamon determines a very, very, very precise frequency line for the signal itself above the hydrogen line. And that particular frequency, which was 1.42055600 megahertz, very precise, and arguably different than other physicists, John Klaus, the director of the observatory, gave it 1420356 instead of Eamon's number. Eamon's, Eamon's number is perfectly, perfectly divisible by the number 72 and 144, again, which are, are, are perfect octaves, which means it resolves with no leftover decimals. Yeah. Which David, it's a David, it's a 144 we, harmonic signal. We are we are at the bottom of the hour. We'll pick this up on the other side. Um, we're going to be keeping obviously the uh, the the uh, printouts in radio with pictures, you know, forevermore now. If you have questions, you can email us through our contact info on our homepage. We'll refer your questions to Jimmy and David in getting ready for the Christmas weekend when we do the real stuff with very complex messages and files and images, and that's the one you want to get ready for. So tonight is a test. If you have those radios, if you're listening to your FM band at 108, obviously, if you hear something weird, record it and tell us, email us at our contact info on the other side of midnight. You are on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. midnight.com Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. Eight cents an episode, two and a half cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight. 
If you have any questions tonight during our test transmission, you can uh, refer them to our guests. And if I move something out of the way here, I can actually give you the number that you should call. Uh, why is this not working? Oh, there we are. Okay, okay. Let me get rid of this. Okay. 917-889-8802. You'd expect that I'd uh, kind of know this number by now. 917-889-8802. If you want to uh, talk to my guest, ask a technical question, how you can participate, um, how you can use an ordinary FM radio tuned to 108 megahertz, upper end of the band, and if you detect anything unusual like those clicks or the chirping that David uh, talked about uh, that you heard earlier in the show, and we'll play them again, or if you're listening to an FM station at 108 and suddenly it's interrupted in a kind of a staccato, I mean, the signal might be powerful enough to do that. Record it. Let us know. Email us at our contact info. Okay, I believe we do have a call, so let me do this, and area code 205, you are on the air. Hello? Area code 205, are you there? Hello? Go ahead. Hmm. I'm not hearing anything. Okay. Not hearing anything. Okay. Um, you might have to try dialing back. Keith, can you tell me if, if, if you can hear anything? Okay. I'm not hearing anybody. David, Jimmy, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah. There you are. There you are. Okay. Um, so I, go ahead. No, I want to continue with the wow signal because this is very profound and <clears throat> proportional to to the number 144, which is which is a perfect third of 432, by the way, and the number 72. The fact that Eamon's exact value for the wow signal frequency is perfectly, perfectly divisible by 144 as a ratio with no leftover decimals, and the number 72 is billions to one. In fact, if we took the value for the wow signal from John Krauss, the director of the observatory, we would not be perfectly divisible. And Eamon is the discoverer of the wow signal. So that's really, really significant. And, and they completely miss this, by the way, because these astronomers don't think in terms of ratio and harmonics they're, they're well, let me let me lay let me lay an idea on you. Someone sent us a hyperdimensional coded signal in these frequencies because of the math and the geometry and the way the real physics works and all that, and they never got a response, so they never sent it again. Exactly, Richard. But when we sent the response, and this is my question to Jimmy, if he's still there. In in 2012, remember the the uh, wow signal came from the constellation of Sagittarius. By the by the way, so when we sent a response, the power Jimmy was 20 times the power of the most powerful commercial radio transmitter. Could you tell us 
how powerful our transmissions are tonight compared to a commercial radio transmitter? Uh, yes. Um, uh, you know, we're transmitting on 432 at a quarter of a million watts and about uh, 150,000 watts, 144.1 megahertz. Now, mind you, these signals are compressed in a very narrow bandwidth, relatively speaking. Um, the typical radio station, um, if we look at the most powerful AM radio station, if we look at KFI, for instance, all the radio stations that are, you know, New York, uh, uh, WABC, they, all, they, they transmit that 50,000 watts. 50 kilowatts is typical of the maximum power that this, uh, you know, this radio station would transmit. So we're really, and, and by the way, the, these stations are transmitting on a pretty, um, you know, wide bandwidth. Uh, typically, the AM radio will be in a 10 to 15 kilohertz or 10 to 15,000 hertz. The FM radios are more in a 20 to 25,000 hertz of bandwidth. Um, our transmissions are literally in a few dozen hertz. So all this power, which is five times more powerful than the typical, the most powerful AM radio station that you will see typically, uh, all the power is compressed in, in a very, very narrow bandwidth. So the effective uh, or the power density, if you will, the, the watt per hertz is much, much greater. So we're, we're really uh, punching a hole here in the, uh, into space. And oh, we are shouting. We, we're using a huge bullhorn compared to any other transmission from Earth tonight in and the direction of Oumuamua. Our target is way closer than theirs because they're sending a, a return message to the constellation of Sagittarius, which will basically never get there in our lifetime. So we're sending signals at, at way more power to very close targets. Well, we're so basically at the distance of Pluto. About four hours is the, uh, uh, you know, lifetime distance to Pluto. And, yeah, and, 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 and hang on, hang on. Remember, NASA was able to get pictures, incredible images back from Pluto during the New Horizons flyby on the power of 25 watts. We're sending what, a hundred or a thousand times that much. Right. And, and, and I want to note for the record that when I held my radio up and it was chirping at 144.1 megahertz, which was one of the two transmission frequencies, your radio show has a recording of that. So we could spectral analyze that little snippet and see what those yeah. numbers actually yeah. are. Because uh, can you do it again? Can you hold the radio up and see if they're still... Well, I don't think I'll do anything right now. Let's see. Okay, I'll turn. It's an experiment. You don't know. Okay. Already. Wait, wait. It's going. Of course it is. David, this is unprecedented, and someone out there is telling us it's unprecedented. They're responding. So what we need to do is I need to shut up, and we need to just tape this for a minute or two, and then we'll spectrum analyze it, and there could be wondrous messages in the codes. There you go. So that that's like, you see how random that is and how that random beat yeah, it sounds it's, like speaking as opposed to a mechanical, yeah. you know, frequency. It's not a drone. It's not a droning sound. It's not hiss. It's not white noise. Oh, speaking of droning, can you now play what we're sending tonight to a muamua? 
Sure, I can play that track again. Let us do uh, that that sequence again. Okay. Wait a second. No, I've got to go back to. That's a more more final. I'm going to send. I, I have a different track. That is trans. <laughs> this is live radio, folks. Jimmy, while he's finding the right right, uh, uh, you know, pew is my grandmother. There it is. 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 This is what we're transmitting. By the way, that's only a quarter of what we transmit. Now, my radio immediately is responding. So the response is instant because I just pressed the call button, by the way, on those on those tones. And... Mm-hmm. And I'm not in the FCC foundry, so I can do this. I'm in the middle of nowhere. So um, so you can see that we're, something is circumventing the speed of light. It or, the- or, or they're in the local neighborhood and they want to get in on the action. Exactly, Richard. You're right, because those flashes in front of Jimmy's camera, and again, I've been... Yeah, we've got, we've got spacecraft hovering over the antenna, so we know somebody's in the neighborhood and they're wanting to be in on the party, you're receiving radio signals are maybe somebody else that wants to... Look, if if this is real, this represents a huge paradigm shift. Who does not want to be, given that I'm talking about the human family model? So we're not dealing with aliens or little greys or whatever. We're dealing with human beings that have egos that love to be in on something that's going to change everything if it's taken seriously. Talk to me. To note, I'm nowhere near a city. I'm nowhere near my town. I'm on the side of a mountain in the middle of freaking nowhere, and there's no Wi-Fi in this office. This is Ethernet, so I have no background radiation in this building, 40 feet from my main house where my children are sleeping. So what you're hearing, again, there's no radio frequency activity on my radio during the chirps, which I've tested. There's a video of that on Richard's site. And it's a phenomenon that's equal to what Tesla and Marconi called messages from aliens in the form of interference. Now, so wait, 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 wait. Let's, let's go back to Tesla's notebooks from which the Collier piece was written. Right. Did, did Tesla actually use the term alien 
What was yes, in, in Collier's Weekly? Tesla claimed that in 1899, in his laboratory in Colorado Springs, which is on the top of Pikes Peak, it's not in the town, he accidentally established radio contact with aliens. And and what and did Tesla, he call them? I want to get to the language. Language well, is crucial. I read a lot on Tesla on this subject. I mean, at one point, again, he had faster than light signaling abilities that we don't use today. His transmitter was alternating current, by the way. So he's transmitting radio signals with alternating current, which is a very different form of radio transmission. So that's important. He determined he was getting intelligent signals from either Mars or Venus or both. It's not easy to determine. But in this Collier's Weekly, yes, he called them aliens. Okay. And he called them extraterrestrials. And he said he heard these strange sounds overtaking his radio apparatus, not unlike with what Jimmy's discovered. And you heard the chirping on, on my little radio tonight. So it's very probable it's the same thing. Jimmy, are you recording possible answers in the EM spectrum later on this morning? Uh, if I'm, You mean if I'm monitoring the frequency? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I do have a recorder on my on my radio uh, that's activated, and so if there's any any EM uh, you know signal coming our way, I will I will record it. That's for sure. But again, Richard, there is no electromagnetic signal detected on the trifield meter when this is happening. They're reaching our no, radio. But no, 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 David, David, you're conflating two things. Forget all your other experiments. Let's focus on the Muamua tonight. Yeah, the chirps you're hearing, I think, are basically a local crowd that want to get in no. on the action. A mua mua, a mua mua may respond electromagnetically because that's the only way anybody else is going to believe this. I know. I, I I hear you. Like, what do you do with the radio? You hold it to your ear. So, what is the end? part of a circuit in a radio. It's not the radio, it's the human ear. In fact, if the ear isn't there, there's nothing happening. Hmm. If a tree falls in the forest and hmm. nobody's there to hear it fall, did it fall? So the ear is part of it. So what happened to me this morning at 4 a.m., almost precisely, hearing a meteorite crash through my window and, and the big rock was lying next to my head on the pillow and I woke up and it was a dream, but I heard it, knocked me out of my sleep. And, and again, this is the very day that we're doing the Moomoo transmissions. It is is a phenomenon of consciousness. But again, a radio signal ends up in the human ear, which is consciousness. And, and if there's no ear, it never happened. So there, we're part of the circuit, and science likes to remove us from the circuit. But it reminds me of some of the the early experiments in quantum mechanics when Heisenberg came. To Einstein and, and also Niels Bohr and Planck, that they felt that the, the presence of an observer consciousness was affecting the data and the results of the of the particle collisions in the subatomic world. And then when they removed an observer, they got different results than when the observer was present. So therefore, this would be an interesting test, Jimmy, is if we remove ourselves and we can remotely record the radios and we're not here, do we get the same response? I mean, that would be a, another control experiment to set up. 
Yeah, I'm of the opinion that we'll get it regardless of whether you're listening. Mm-hmm. So what we need to do is to have you, you know, key the radio again, and we'll be very quiet, and we'll just record what someone's trying to tell us. We'll spectrum analyze it, and, you know, by Christmas, the weekend, we'll have that decoded. We will give out one more time how people can participate. You go to uh, Jimmy's section of Radio with Pictures. Item number one is a beautiful graphic he prepared showing three separate radios you can purchase or use from around the house fm and you can record please if you get anything you need to record it okay and next time we do this david will have the ability to record what we're hearing right now independent of the show so let's hear it again Okay, let me turn. I just turned it off, but it, it's highly active. It's going crazy. Which one would expect? I can't wait to see what the frequencies are encoded in that. Okay, we yeah, have... This is strange, Richard. This is strange. The second I let go of it with my hand, it stopped. Now, I'm going to pick it up with my hand again. You can't see this, but this is what I'm doing. It's not active anymore. So, so wait, wait, wait. I, I thought you had to key it with a switch on it. No, no, no. I'm not pushing any buttons. It's just tuned to 144.1 megahertz receiving right now because that's the frequency jimmy sent the tone right at. so the so radio is radio, sitting so the radio is sitting there and you don't hear anything unless you physically pick it up no no it turns out that when i let go of it it, it stopped but then when i picked it up again it, it didn't do anything so it was well somebody stopped transmitting it's partly my body's interaction with it, but when Jimmy does it, it's not touching his skin, right? So he'll put them on, on a table, and they'll do the same thing. And But what you just heard, I mean, I've got bare hands. i got no gloves on. And again, you know, my it, it's, it's not like, for example, you can do this with a pair of speakers um, in your house. You connect it to an amp. And your input line, you can pinch your fingers on the positive and negative, and you'll hear a buzz and through your speakers because, you're, because your body's electric field is interacting with the circuit, and you hear this loud buzzing. It's a steady drone, kind of really loud, annoying sound, but what we're hearing on the radio is nothing like that. So no. that's, that's another... Okay, we, we, I'm sorry, David, but we're running out of time, and I need to get this in. Yeah, when, okay. when Robin and I went to um, uh, Central America, to the Yucatan, to, the, to Chichen Itza, to measure the torsion field amplification of the, of the Kuklukan Pyramid, mm-hmm. before we got there, like several miles away, we're sitting in one of the buses, and for some reason, you know, they stop when you're on these tours, because we took a commercial tour to get there from the ship. And they send people into these stores to buy stuff. Obviously, they all have deals between the bus company, the tour operators, 
and the and the uh, you know stores, so the tourists basically buy stuff. Okay, it's all a one big happy commercial family. So Robin and I stayed behind on the bus, and I hooked up the torsion amplifier system with my Accutron just to see if miles away from the pyramid I could pick up anything going on with the pyramid, and I did. And then Robin picked up the little Accutron, and the signal went off the scale because she, in the loop, amplified enormously the background of the pyramid miles away from where I eventually wound up measuring it right next to it. So I know the human component, the biological interaction with the torsion field is a part of this equation. So I find nothing strange at all in the fact that you need to be touching the radio for it to work because it's not EM, it's the field. It's the hyperdimensional torsion field that they're talking to us on. Exactly. Like when you have bad reception on a radio and you stick, you connect an antenna to your AM or FM radio, you can just put your hand near the antenna without But that's touching. not it's, what's going on here. No, it's, it's, no, that's it's, not it's, what's going on here. Now, and this talk, talk about in the time we have remaining, talk about how these radios, once you use them in this mode, it breaks them. You can't use them as ordinary radios again. Not at that frequency. Jimmy, can you talk about that? Yeah, yeah. You know, what I've observed, um, you know, for over the last four and a half years, uh, most of my radios over time have been changed. They, they no, most of them no longer transmit in the electromagnetic spectrum. Uh, they don't behave like, you know, like they should behave anymore. And yet they are still very active and, and uh in receiving this energy, which I feel is, is really more energy than obviously it's not EM. Um, and there are some of the patterns, you know, we, we heard the, ch- the chirping that uh, David uh, let, us, let us hear earlier, uh, there are, but there are some, there are different energy signatures. And some energy signatures produce interactions with the radios that are absolutely unmatchable, unreplicable. The, the radio can go on and off at a speed that's it's really unmatchable, and so it's really, um, really, a, a, you know, a very special phenomenon. I've, I've seen also um, as a as a kind of demonstration that's really energy flowing, is that you can take one radio, for instance, that's having that interaction, and you take a, a radio number two, a different radio, but identical, right? Identical radio set to the same frequency. And you you take that radio number two and you approach it to radio number one and the energy will be induced and transferred into radio from radio number one to radio number two, right? If, and and hang on, hang happening. on. And and they will both chirp simultaneously together. That's correct. They, they wow. become in sync. And, and it's not supposed to happen, obviously, right? If you have two radios that are in a receiving mode and, let's say, receiving electro, regular electromagnetic radio wave, well, first of all, both radio will be receiving the same thing. They should be in sync. But it's not what we're seeing. In this case, one radio will be active, and you take another radio set to the same frequency, identical. It's not doing anything. And as you approach it and you get closer, then that energy is, is transferred and induced in that radio number two. Mm. So it's really an energy, an energy flow. And they're, you know, they're a good demonstration of that. I have very good evidence of that. Okay, next question. 
have you taken apart these radios to see if something is physically changing the circuits, the transistors, the amplifiers, the internal guts of the radio? No, the forensic analysis of the electronics inside, I've not had time to do that. Or, you know, that's something that, that, that remains to be done. Seems to me obvious we should do that. Yeah. Well, there's nothing broken in there. So, you know, you, you don't, you know, you have resistors, crystal oscillators, you have. Yeah, but they, 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 they have standard specifications. If you measure the, the altered radios compared to the standard specs, Will you see differences? Will you see physical physical changes? What will be effective, uh, I think an efficient way to do this will be to actually deal with the actual manufacturers of these radios, the engineers that are very qualified and understand the, you know, how the, the, what the makeup of it is. And so having kind of forensic analysis of that would be, uh, would be a, a, So you a, send one of these radios back to the factory and say, tell me what's changed. Well, yeah, but I think it, uh, the conversation probably will need to be a bit deeper than that because <laughs> if they look on the surface, <laughs> you know, it's something that's uh, created by non-human intelligence. They, they may not think, it may make the connections. I think it has to be done in a, a special, um, you know, special setting. Okay. Well, another thing, <laughs> sighting number five. And you're, this and- is a record, Jimmy. We've never, in all the months I've worked with Jimmy, We've never had more than one flash or two. I think one night you had two, but we've never seen so many ever before. So it's well, we're doing odd. something historic, guys. Expect the unexpected. I did. I know nobody's ever, as far as we know, nobody's ever sent a signal to a muamua, even when it was close. No, no, the Breakthrough Listen Project did not send. They just listened. For some reason, nobody on the entire planet, all these damn geniuses, nobody thought, well, why don't we send a signal and see if we get a response? Nobody sent. If it's 10 times longer than it is wide, we could have attenuated signal. We could have known exactly what frequency corresponded to it as as a monopole or a dipole. And a dipole and a monopole are only one octave apart. So... Why didn't if we had a precise measurement? If we did, but we don't. We don't have a precise measurement, so we Mm. can't do it. Well, to be continued. This is really an amazing beginning to a month-long experiment. We will keep everyone in the audience updated. Obviously, if you hear anything, you need to keep us updated. You've been listening to a unique program in our uh, series, The Other Side of Midnight. To be continued on the night of the 25th, on Christmas night, we'll report to you the results of the analysis of tonight's experimental transmission, what we get on Christmas Eve, and we'll be broadcasting, but will not be on the air, and on Christmas night, gosh knows what's going to happen. So until tomorrow night, same time, same bat channel, same frequency, remember, third star on the left. Straight on till morning. Good night, everyone.